0: i'm matt booker
1: i'm dave laird and i'm ben Felony's diamond a risky and multivalent trade name meant both to connote and to parody the modern health conscious consumer's sense of vice indulgence transgression sin vis-a-vis the consumption of a high calorie corporate snack here on the concavity show
0: Mr. Squishy. <laughs> Sweet. Perfect. Ben, nice
2: intro lead. That was sick, man. That's from Mr. Squishy by Wallace. Nice nice ear, Matt. I think I would have guessed Infinite Jest somewhere, I don't know, in like the 300-page range, but <laughs> it's been a while since I read Mr. Squishy. Uh, welcome, everybody, to episode 76 of Concavity Show. We are here with Ben Felony's diamond as you just heard. Ben great to have you on the show thanks so much for taking the time out to do this who are you tell us a bit about yourself uh
1: i I don't know who your other huge um fans of the pod are but i would like to think of myself as like top five fan fanboys of the pod uh if i wasn't top 10 i'd be offended i think well thank you we appreciate that (laughs) i would put you squarely at least on the top five yeah i was trying to think uh in the days leading up to this, how I actually found your podcast in the first place, I think it's because I was trying to find podcasts with Andrew Savage from Parquet Courts, and I might have found your oh, episode nice. with the interview with him. And then, obviously, yeah. there was the you know I'd read um, I'd read Infinite Jest when I was at university, just, just nothing to do with my, my course. I was doing a history degree, but just, you know, that was more fun than the history degree. And then I, you know, had an interest ever since. (laughs) So there was this, so the parts of the Venn diagram were coming together. You got Andrew Savage, you got David Foster Wallace. And then I think I probably went backwards from that and listened to every single one, every
2: single episode. And then, so, and then, and, and here we are. That's funny. I was a history major as well in an English minor. And like right after I finished my history degree or like maybe three or four months after I started reading Infinite Jest, then I finished it and I was like, damn, I should have done like an English major. You know, (laughs) like this was more compelling to me than the history stuff that I just did. So then I eventually like went back to school and did that. So that's funny. Cool. So Ben,
0: as you can tell, you're in London, you're in the UK and of particular interest, I think, is that you just got back from an FA Cup match, um, <laughs> Arsenal versus Liverpool, and unfortunately, your preferred team did not win that particular match. Yeah, we're sorry. Um, but we could, we could geek out on that for a while, um, because we'd now get English Premier League soccer on the Peacock Network, so we tend to watch quite a bit of it on Saturdays here uh... in the US, Saturday mornings. That's like NBC like, affiliate, right? Right, Pequod's right, so, baby. Um, but the other thing about Ben is he, every year for the past several years, sends us like an end of year audio message, yeah. and it's great because we love the format of asynchronous audio. What that? What else is a podcast but asynchronous audio? Right, and so. We had said, oh, if you're ever, you know, in in the UK, like we should meet up. And we just sort of accelerated that plan by doing it here over the <laughs> internet. Um, you know, and email is our other form of, of communication. So it's nice to have this form of communication with you. Um, kind of synchronous audio and video, I should say.
2: Yeah. Um, and Ben, you always give us great book recommendations. You always have compelling things to say about movie and television and music. And we have like a lot of very similar overlap in the stuff that we like. And we just thought, well, what the hell? Let's just get Ben on the show and and do the end of year review with Ben. Who's, who's been consistently engaging with this
0: uh, great stuff at the end of every year. So here we are. Great to have you on. So we're going to go through some of the stuff you talked about in your recent audio message to us. Yeah. And you know our plan is today. Dave and I have been doing this kind of year end thing for several years. I don't know
2: the five, whole the whole seven, life of the show. Years, we've done this right. every year for eight so years. a lot of
0: a lot of years. We've yeah. done it, and we're going to try to keep it to our sort of top five books. Um, and we might go over that number. We're going to go uh, one by one <laughs> through some books to talk about, and then um, for some of our other top films podcasts music of the year that's going to be in our bonus uh episode for patreon subscribers Mm -hmm. so i would say if you're not sick of us yet and you want even more concavity show content you can become a patreon supporter and get our direct links to bonus episodes that's right
2: and ben thank you for your patreon support over the years we so appreciate you (laughs) i
1: was there from day dot yeah
2: (laughs) yeah that's right
0: i think that that serves in my memory too Day Z. you rock day Z. <laughs> all right uh how, how do you want to start this ben do you want to do you want to go first with the- let's kick it off with ben yeah yeah so
1: maybe the the first one uh on my list is um anything that moves by jamie stewart who is better known for being the the only consistent member of the the band Shushu, spelt X-I-U space X-I-U.
2: Yeah, yeah. I used to work in a record store and the, the album Fabulous Muscles by them came out around that time and I would always think of that title and I refer to my own muscles in a fabulous way sometimes. Yeah. Is that the album cover with the naked guy on the front? with the i think it's like him and he's doing some kind of dramatic pose i don't know if he's naked or not it would make sense okay it's called fabulous muscles you know he's got to show or he's he's holding a like a doll a kind of baby doll is that oh i'm just gonna look it up right now
1: because that the reason i ask is because that comes up in the in the book so i just thought uh that was interesting but it's so, anyways, like a,
2: like a guinea pig like a little kitty cat furry animal like on his shoulder and his eyes are closed it's a different yeah. one it's a different he's one. got a shirt on though there's no nudity okay <laughs> so so that right, t- so
0: tell us about the book yeah
2: so essentially the book
1: is a series of autobiographical short stories that are all about jamie stewart's sexual experiences encounters uh some some sort of you know that are nice and many that kind of go wrong one way or the other or are, are horrifying and <laughs> or disgusting so um so it doesn't really glamorize sexual acts it kind of is engaging in this humanistic um storytelling of like look at all the terrible sexual encounters i've had and i and i live to tell the tale <laughs> and right, yeah. uh, it sort of starts from childhood and like some slightly weird things that happened at the the beginning of his childhood. And then it kind of goes all the way through, including like when he was on tour with Shushu and stuff that happened Mm -hmm. then. And it's very addictive, very Moorish. You read the first couple and you're just like, I need to, I'm hooked on. There's always some kind of crazy angle to these, to these um, remembrances, these kind of short story, you know, and I'd like to think
2: they're all true uh or like largely true right yeah you're like what level of embellishment is involved here fiction but yeah yeah Yeah, after your audio Um, message i went and and just went to like google books and read like a few chapters that it gives you of this and yeah there's like uh some pretty weird and funny quirky kind of stuff it's compelling for sure i'm curious to read the whole thing
1: the can i can can we get explicit you can always censor me later of
0: course Sure, we'll so there's this the, mind, the thing so. that
1: sticks in the mind. And maybe this says more about me than about but there's he manages to arrange a threesome with him, a friend slash girlfriend and someone else. <laughs> and he's kind of into the he's into the idea of the threesome until they get to the hotel room and this person undresses and they they have some kind of yeast infection that is like very (laughs) disgusting and pungent and the phrase that i will probably never forget is that he refers to a kind of beige fudge that is coming out of this person (laughs) and um it and and he's sort of trying to kind of hold his nerve so the threesome doesn't go off as as he planned I guess. So that that I guess gives you a flavour, no pun intended, of just the the way things can go <laughs> in this in this book.
2: <laughs> wow, that's that's disgusting. Truly, well done. We had a sex ed teacher in high school who referred to yeast infections as tumbling cauliflower. That was her description of what <laughs> it's
0: like. Jesus,
2: <laughs> I think tan fudge is like. I don't know which one is more. <laughs> <laughs> sorry matt uh, your face just went uh, very awry there anyways moving on from that topic <laughs> all
0: right dave what, what give us one of your books and we'll, uh... all right
2: okay so in my like number five slot of the year and i'll i'll give a little caveat i've omitted books that we've done full episodes on this year just because you know we've given them lots of airtime. so like i won't talk about lipsky's book or uh diego's book or sorry even your your book matt but I'll have it known that it would be very highly ranked in my year of reading for sure. Uh, but fine, omitting sir. those ones, <laughs> I would put uh, in the top five spot, The Passenger uh, slash Stella Maris by Cormac McCarthy in my number five spot. I would say those books are like one book. You, like you have to read both of them, I think, or it makes sense to read both of them and neither of them make as much sense without the other. So I'd put that in the number five spot. I thought these books were mostly really good. Did you guys get a chance to read these yet?
0: So it's funny you say that because I've only read Stella Maris. Like I have the passenger. Oh, interesting. Well. Okay. Um, yeah. And I liked, you know, what I've read of Stella Maris. It's really like just two people talking. Mm-hmm. Like it's a woman and her therapist, therapist in yeah. this institution. And, you know, they get into all kinds of um Discussions about life and mental health, but also like theoretical physics, Mm -hmm. and it's very much like Cormac McCarthy being Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, and so I, I felt like some of the stuff that he had. Um, both characters sang was like just really M- Cormac McCarthy putting his <laughs> his voice in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? They're which is fine. Him, yeah. yeah, which is yeah. fine. But uh, I, I definitely highlighted some passages in my book where I was like, okay, this is really just Cormac McCarthy wanted to talk about <laughs> physics. Right. Um, yeah, or like really but,
2: expensive violins.
0: Right. Yeah. And I, I loved all of that stuff. Yeah. I thought it was really good. But mm-hmm. um, that that setup, that simple kind of setup you know, he's, he's like, we didn't know if we'd get more books out of him, right? Yeah. So, like, the fact that these two books, I think, had been written, you know, a while ago, and he worked on them for a long time, maybe um, they turned out really good, though. I, of yeah. The one I've read, like yeah. I say, tell us more about The Passenger, I guess.
2: I'm really curious to know, like, what it would feel like to read just Stella Maris without the context of The Passenger. I feel yeah, like it would be really confusing, because you have, like, nothing it, to go on. Whereas it's if you read the passenger, so you know difficult. exactly who those two characters are. You know, like a lot about, particularly yeah. the sister's story and her relation to her brother, who's the main protagonist in the passenger. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess you could read them in either order, but um, I think I, the passenger I mean, is probably meant to be read first. Would be my instinct. Came out first, right?
0: I didn't know any of this, and <laughs> I, I I thought it was fine. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't, yeah. I didn't feel lost or confused about anything i felt pretty well yeah. understood. okay
2: good yeah that's cool um there's some weird stuff about speaking of like weird sexual encounters there's some weird stuff about uh incest in these books which is like i'm curious about why mccarthy wanted to write about that <laughs> just like from a psychological perspective but um there are there are elements of the passenger that i really disliked there's a, there's a particular character that relates to the sister character that you would have read about that I found to be just like really obnoxious. And I like disliked all the sections that featured this character. It's kind of like a hallucination that she has um, consistently throughout the book. But the parts that were about the main character and his life as like, uh, like a rescue diver. Like he does like um, deep dives into like helicopter crashes and like recovers like black boxes and stuff like that. Uh, all the stuff about his life in New Orleans, I thought was really compelling, and the prose stuff from McCarthy is obviously just like knockout good. Um, so I quite liked that pair of books, but I didn't think they were perfect. But but I quite
0: enjoyed them overall. Great. So Ben's first book was Anything That Moves by Jamie Stewart, and Ben, remind us how is Jamie spelled? How is that spelled?
1: J A M I E.
0: Okay. So I, I don't know this band, unlike Dave, Shushu, like, um They're pretty strange. I'm not a big pretty music person, yeah. believe it or not. But, um, <laughs> and then Stella Maris slash The Passenger. I think that's fair to count that as one book. I think so, like, too. They come they in were, like a
2: slipcover together. Yeah, they so, were packaged
0: yeah. together yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, my number five i should say my list is just all books from 2023 oh that's cool which, which usually doesn't happen for me mm-hmm. yeah like i've read a bunch of other stuff this year yeah um but i also read a bunch of new stuff so i'm going to talk about that and my list is kind of ranked i am also like you dave excluding books that we talked about on the show yeah, yeah. um so my number five is the new book from tim o'brien which is called America fantastica. Mm. And I got this book at the Texas Book Festival this year because he was there and it's maybe not something I would have picked up but I read the description and I was like oh this sounds like pretty straightforward like crime novel. Oh yeah. And it is. Like I would compare it to something like a seventies Elmore Leonard novel or even something like Tarantino film Mm. and that it's very, you know, accessible. It's not even super literary. Like I say, it's, it's got some literary elements to it, but it's really like a page turner of a guy who's on the loose, robs a bank. Is he going to get caught? What is he doing with his life? And then you get more into his backstory and this woman that he sort of kidnaps, but no one's really looking for her either so it's like yeah. what do they do if they're on the loose and they're like the bank doesn't even report it it's a long story but i really liked it it's a long book too like for a book like that normally those are like solid 300 page and you're out mm-hmm. and this is more like maybe like 450 so it really goes down some tangents hmm. and uh, rabbit holes some of it like they drive from california into mexico and um I just really enjoyed it. And like I say, not something I would have normally picked up, but I, th- I really had liked, you know, some of Tim O'Brien's other books. Oh, cool. And, um, and sometimes yeah, that's you just my... need like
2: a romp, you know?
0: Yeah, this was very much like a <laughs> uh, page turn. Like, I didn't yeah. feel like I was doing work to read it, um, yeah. but he deceives you with that. Like, it is well constructed. Cool. Um, America Fantastica. So, did you guys meet, to meet you. him at the book festival
2: or didn't talk about like it? Did?
0: I did. I was cool. actually last in line. He was signing books and he was just about to leave. And I caught him right at the end of the signing line and we got to chat for a few seconds. And he, it was really nice signing my cool. book. So, um, all right. So, back to Ben. Ben, give us another one of your top books.
1: Okay. I'm going to go with um, a book called. Porn, colon, an oral history by Polly Barton. (laughs) Wow, nice subtitle. (laughs) Which is, it's a really good subtitle. I think some people have felt like they were slightly misled by that because it's not like, I think your instinct when you see that title is like, it's going to be a history of like Pornhub and Silicon Valley and like that kind of porn oral history with like an insider account of the industry. But it's, it's not that at all. What it actually is, is... A series of anonymized interviews, uh, maybe in the Studs Terkel kind of tradition. I've never read any Studs Terkel, but I feel like it would be, um, you know, in that vein. And maybe Svetlana Alexeyevich as well, that kind of thing. And she's speaking to, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, she put out an email to various people in her in her contacts uh, list and said, you know, I want to interview people about Their relationship with porn and their history, like, you know, their entire history of how they, you know, when they first read watched whatever their first pornographic material and um what it was and how that's changed over the years and do they keep it from their partners or do they sort of watch it with their partners and all that kind of stuff so that so she knows these people they're people you know colleagues friends whatever but the the interviews are the interviews are anonymized in the in the book itself so i think there's about 20 interviews and it's it's really really good and it's um she kind of says in her introduction if i if I recall that she's she didn't really expect herself to be writing this book, and you sense throughout the interviews that she's had to get over her own embarrassment of talking about porn, and that in some ways sure. she is she she is repulsed by the idea of porn because she's a feminist and has seen porn as this kind of you know patriarchal misogynistic yeah. venture that she has not really had much to to do with necessarily. And she, she herself, and it crops up in the interviews because it's, you know, it's a back and forth between her and her subjects that she she finds um, either erotic literature or erotic parts within regular literature to be much more stimulating than any kind of um, videographic pornography, which to her seems so confected and fake that it's never turned her on. So she's always found that like well written well-written erotic parts in literature have been what worked better for her. But um oh, yeah. but it's you know you get you you couldn't predict what's going to come up in these interviews because you know you pick 20 different people you're gonna have 20 different you mm. know random responses to pornography and um you know there's like an old man talking about you know, blue movies that were being passed around in kind of clen- clandestine underground cinemas uh-huh. in the 1960s or whatever. And there's, you know, oh, yeah. a young a young man who talks about, you know, uh, you know, the more kind of porn hub end of the spectrum. And then there's there's all sorts of things in between, and and um, and some incredibly kind of personal and and weird and potentially embarrassing things that that come up and oh, um including someone who has obviously got a lot of shame around this and they're really into kind of um bur- burping like belching burping kind of porn that's their <laughs> that's their thing that's their kink like oh, wow. videos never of people burping of and i don't existing. i don't think they necessarily have to be like naked whilst they're burping but it's the kind of burp thing that that gets them so that's oh, one of the more fascinating interviews that, that yeah um so um i have to say after reading that i didn't like rush out and try and find like that part of the internet for myself i was more i was more just interested in it but um but i think so it's but something I think something for
2: everyone isn't there in, in this age of the internet yeah
1: i hope my first two choices don't portray me as this kind of you know but uh that's just that's just
0: the way the cookie crumbled about, this yeah year. <laughs> But, yeah, I told you I'd read a, a – there's a lengthy review of this book in the New York Review of Books, and oh, yeah. that's how I came upon it and discovered it. And, uh, you know, there is an old, like, cliche back in the early days of the internet, like, all the great advancements in the technologies behind the internet were, like, invented by, like, porn websites. <laughs> that makes like, sense. Yeah. Like, the ability to even embed uh, high-resolution video, mm. you know, the uh, – all all of these – it's sort of yeah. tongue in cheek, but the, there's some truth to it. And, you know, there's a, a famous like cartoon where it's like the size of smartphones and they're going down until people realize they could see porn on the smartphones and then they keep getting bigger and, and you know, the <laughs> iPhone Max. And, right, yeah. and you know, the, I, I was also thinking when I was reading that review that, you know, there's been, uh, you know, a lot of frank conversation, especially in the past like 10 years, I would say, about, like a backlash to alcohol, and like a lot of like sober memoirs, and the, you know, people, younger people, rethinking, you know, the popularity of non-alcoholic cocktails. Like, there's been a rise in sort of pushback on a lot of things that maybe previous generations took for granted, and you haven't really seen that with porn in a lot of ways, and that that's an interesting. Um, if anything, there's been an explosion, like with. Only God, it's really hard to talk about this without just constant puns and double entendres. But <laughs> um, there's been a rise. No, there's been a, <laughs> there's been an increase in like you know OnlyFans and creators who are uh, on Instagram and like the personalization of things. So I, I think it's a really interesting subject that hasn't gotten a lot of um, kind of mainstream or academic. Yeah. attention since the
2: 80s maybe if only wallace's you know project that he wanted to do about this subject like yeah. if he was still alive and could write about it now but it would be like a pretty fascinating yeah. read huh
0: yeah i mean he, he wrote a pretty good one with the big red, big red sun, sun yeah mm-hmm. but um so yeah just on
1: right. on the um you know it's interesting that you mentioned the alcohol versus non-alcoholic drinks and uh pornography uh because i picked out Uh, just like a one paragraph quote from this to give you a flavor of one of the interviews. And Mm -hmm. um, it kind of covers both of those. So this is just something someone said. So they're actually talking about someone else they know, but they just say, a friend of mine, my cousin stopped drinking alcohol, but he didn't tell me that. We went out to a bar in Soho and he ordered a bottle of vodka. I didn't know he was in AA at that time. He made me drink a bottle of vodka in front of him so that he could get kind of a thrill from it. I said... So what do you do now that you don't drink or smoke? How do you get your kicks? To which he replied, I have my white noise. For three hours before I go to bed, I watch the most violent pornography I can find. I don't masturbate. I don't even feel anything. I just watch it and I don't think about anything. Hearing that, I thought, my God, man, have a vodka.
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. Wow. That's nuts.
0: Um. Yeah, that, that is hours? shit. God, it's it, like a
2: Martin Scorsese marathon.
0: And that reminds me, I think I've mentioned this on the show um, already, but it, it's so good I'm going to have to repeat it, which is at the conference in Gettysburg last year, um, one of the presenters, Maite, put up this quote from a tweet from a writer named Carlos Busquet, and it said something like, there is nothing more dangerous than a person who does not need an addiction to soften their relationship to the world, for such a person is as hideous as the world itself. <laughs> and it's sort of saying, yeah. like, there are people who are addicted to, like, quitting addictions just as much as they are addicted to the substance or the Man, that's thing so in meta, question hey? themselves. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think that's interesting. Like Wallace himself, you know, said he was addicted to television, which is itself is a type of like warriorism he compares it to. Yeah. Um, so, super interesting. Um, and, that's almost and like it.
2: a quote that would come out of the Annette House section on yeah. in Infinite Jest, right? Like, yeah, all the things that you can become addicted to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Um, all right. So, Dave, you're up next. Yeah. I got um,
2: Number four for me this year, I would say, would be Magnetic Fields by Ron oh. Lowenson. book i know matt really likes and and adam levin recommended this book to us like years ago i think when we had him on the first time yeah um speaking of erotic literature this book has quite a a few erotic scenes in it (laughs) um i mean does it it has a couple there's a couple there's a couple of parts that stand out in my memory um there's like a university professor who eventually has a relationship with a student um and they have some pretty saucy bits um but this is kind of like the book that you described, Matt. It's like a book about like robbery off the start. So it follows a character who's like just a low-level like B and E guy, and he just like breaks into houses, and he's not really that interested in like stealing stuff as much as he is in, as just being in like the sacred space of others, and he kind of like gets a kick out of that. Uh, and he steals like weird little like trinkets and like keepsake type things. Um, and the book goes from there, but that's kind of the starting narrator. Um, And this book is cool. I liked it a lot. It's from like 85, 84, 85, I think. So it's like right around the time of White Noise or like just before White Noise. Yeah. Um, And I know you're a big fan of this one, Matt, as well.
0: Yeah. So this has turned into one of my favorite books of all time. And I'm glad I got you to read it this year. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's got an interesting structure. And that the first section is 45 pages. The middle section is 90 pages. And the final section is 45 pages. I did not notice that. A couple of other things I've learned about it, you know, or thought about it, Dave, is that um, some of the book is based on a true story Mm -hmm. uh, about this child prodigy who is a sort of composer uh, and dies young. Mm -hmm. That story is real. That's a real
2: heartbreak moment. Like, I've talked about this before on the show, but anything about, like, the death of children, like, hits too hard for me at this point because I have, you know, two young kids. But, like...
0: I'm the same way, man. I felt that way with the tree of life.
2: Yeah. Tre- yeah. That's a good example of this for sure. Yeah.
0: But that what I think interested Ron Lowenson about it is the kid in the story is, you know, a prodigy who is also interested in the music Kindertoten leader, which is like child death music. Mm-hmm. And right. it's sort of, you know, sadly ironic that yeah. later this ch- child himself dies. Mm-hmm. And is it, is that Mahler who wrote that? Is it Mahler? That sounds. I think it's that Mahler. That sounds
2: right. I read it pretty early in the year, but that sounds.
0: And similar. it's a similar thing happened with the composer, who I think was Mahler, uh, is that he had not had a child who died. He wrote that music, and then later had a child who died. Oh, so wow. it's sort of like this curse of the Kindertoten leader. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say, Dave, I don't know if you noticed this, but like you described the um, the the burglar. Jerome, or I think it's Albert or Jerome. The guy's breaking and entering. Mm -hmm. He breaks into a home where there is a train set in a room. Yeah. But that part of the book is described as being in the San Francisco Bay area. Mm -hmm. But then in the second section, we meet that kid who has the train room. And that is described as being in the Hudson Valley of New York. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a dream within a dream section there's some sort of like it reads like a realistic novel, but it's not like there's yeah. some stuff in it that is almost like supernatural. So, yeah,
2: that's a good so. point. I don't think I've, I don't think that struck me as much. It's it's
0: well can... integrated into it, but anyways, yeah. I could talk, we could do a whole episode on that book. Cause I love yeah, that's it. that's so great. Much. I liked it a lot. Um, yeah. And our buddy, Justin Warsh is big into it right now. I was actually talking to him about this book earlier today. So uh, we'll have to, uh, Maybe get him on the show to talk about uh, magnetic fields as well. So, cool. Sorry to just dominate my your whole list, but like you brought up one of my favorite books. So that's, that's great. You know had that. more intelligent things to um, say about it than I did, as usual. So I don't, so it's I don't know about that, <laughs> ben, ben. you haven't read this book. You, you, you don't know this book. I haven't read it, field? but obviously
1: being uh, being, uh, you know fanboy somewhere between number one to number five of the podcast i do remember the adam <laughs> levin talking about it on that episode and yeah, i bought i have a copy in an ever increasingly large stack of wow, books yes. okay and if there's one thing i've learned and this is a warning to listeners if there's one thing i've learned about books is that particularly with books that aren't really in print anymore but are like perhaps cheap on a books or secondhand buy it when you can if you have the funds available right. buy it when you can because <laughs> it won't always be cheap and then you'll kick yourself when it's yep. on ebay for like 500 quid because they haven't for some reason there's an issue it's not being it's not being reissued you know for various yeah, reasons and you're like why the, the hell board. didn't i buy it when it was like 10 pounds on eight books so so <laughs> i have got a copy Ooh, right. and i've bumped it i've put an asterisk specifically <laughs> i'm trying to th- i'm trying to think you know you know what actually uh, not to like be smug about it but it's happened in reverse where i've looked at prices after i've bought things and gone thank god i oh, did buy that, that when, I, when yeah. I
2: did <laughs> yeah i found this uh, book to be kind of hard to track down i mean i found it through like amazon.com which is like the easiest way to find a book for most well for american people for canadian people it's a pain in the ass because it's not on Amazon.ca, but it's on Amazon.com. So you got to pay for like way higher shipping because it's coming from the U.S. I ended up getting it shipped to a friend who lives in Portland. And I met up with her in Seattle in February. So she brought it to me. It kind, kinda of, But I couldn't find it anywhere else, like not in the library. No bookstores had it or even like in their system. So it's kind of easy, but sort of also weird to find this
0: book. And um, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but there's a band, Magnetic Fields, obviously. That's right. Yeah. And but they take their name, songs. they take their name from the Andre Breton book, Magnetic Fields, which came out in, like the 1920s, uh, and it's okay. sort of a surrealistic, like prose poetry masterpiece. There are, I think, a few connections to Lowenson's book that he does take thematically from that book, but they're pretty tenuous hmm. and it's a very bizarre book to read. I like Andre Breton a lot, but that book is not meant to be read like literally Okay, um, <laughs> magnetic fields. Cool. Um, How are you, Matt? You got a number four for us? Uh, so my number four is uh, the deluge by Stephen Markley, uh, which is a big know uh, 700 page novel about climate and uh, dystopian climate disaster yeah yeah and this is a book that i'm kind of cheating in that i moderated this panel at the texas book festival this year it was actually supposed to be two books uh the new earth by jess Rowe. jess Rowe dropped out kind of at the last minute but i did read the new earth by jess Rowe as well which is Mostly about a family uh, coming together for a wedding and the sort of dysfunctional family members, one of whom um, is killed in Palestine by an Israeli sniper. Um, So very much of the moment, if you want to read um, The New Earth by Jess Rowe. But The Deluge by Stephen Markley has got a lot of actual science in it, Um, and it's sort of large cast of characters. One of whom is uh, a client, climate scientist. One of whom sort of works in Washington, uh, in politics, and so you get a lot of, um, you know, stories that like how, how does how does a writer take what is probably the most important issue of our times and sort of illustrate that as an urgency thing. And it's not that like, Oh, the penguins are all going to die. It's more like you and your family members are going to be affected by this. And here's what that will look like. Mm -hmm. And so that, I thought it was very effective at sort of personalizing that where you actually see stories of people who are, uh, you know, affected by disasters, which is what, you know, we see all the time. And they're sort of written off as isolated incidents or not connected to sort of broader cause. Um, and then, you know, getting to meet uh, Markley was great uh, and talk to him. One thing I learned a lot of the political stuff in it about passing legislation and things is inspired by true events and the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which actually ha- is You know, weirdly named the IRA, but (laughs) is really uh, named that to pass. And it's full of climate mitigation like projects, like maybe the greatest of our generation. It's sort of unknown in popular press how much that actually had to do with, you know, renewable energy and uh, incentives for electric vehicles and all kinds of really popular things were passed in that act. So that that was a learning uh, point for me. Hmm. And it, it got a ton of press. I mean, the guy was on like the Seth Meyers show and oh, a lot yeah. of TV stuff. So, huh.
2: I read a book this year that sounds quite similar to that. The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson.
0: Yeah. We talked about that a bit with yeah, uh, yeah.
2: David Lipsky, I believe. Yeah, that makes sense. And Sheila mentioned him too.
0: Right. Right. Um, cool. So that's my number sounds four. Good. I'm going to pass it back to. Yeah. Back to Ben.
1: Okay, so I think I'm going to go for uh, a, a novella called Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. Ooh, yeah. um, who, uh, Dave? I know we had a bit of a back and forth on via email about Claire Keegan, so I know there's at yeah, least one of Yeah, I just read Keegan her new collection.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah uh, so you'll have to you'll have to tell me what you what you think about that. But um, so this Definitely. for people who don't know, this was um, I think it was long listed. Possibly also shortlisted for the Booker Prize uh, last year or the year before, so that's when it came onto people's radars. And right, it's yeah. about the uh, Magdalene Laundry scandal in Ireland, which went on for many decades, and was basically. Um, I'm there are many elements to it, but my understanding of it is that sort of disgraced. Uh, women who had become pregnant and weren't married uh were sort of taken in by the catholic church and uh they had to do forced labor in these laundries uh and so the laundry kind of made money for the for the church as an institution by you know being doing this laundry work for the community people kind of knew what was going on but because of the restrictive nature of the society and sort of code of silence around the catholic church that people didn't they knew what was going on or perhaps they didn't but it definitely wasn't talked about or challenged um there was an exceptionally high rate of child death uh when the babies were born in in Mm -hmm. the in the magdalene laundries because um I think they often didn't call a doctor when a doctor was needed and things like that. So it was this giant scandal in in Ireland, um, which I think maybe Enda Kenny or, you know, uh, the president of Ireland only apologised for it in the formally acknowledged it. The kind of head of state Mm -hmm. only acknowledged it in the in the 2000s, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not directly told through from the perspective of a woman in the, in the laundry itself, it's um, it's a small business owner who has a kind of firewood um, business who is prov- it's set at Christmas time and he's providing firewood for the, for the local community and going around making deliveries. And he happens to stumble mm-hmm. upon when delivering firewood to the, to the church, he sees a woman oh, yeah. locked up in a, in a kind of shed and is kind of shocked by what he sees. And he he is sent into a kind of crisis where he is deciding what to do, whether to intervene. His wife wants him to keep quiet because his children will be affected if he kicks up a fuss, because, uh, the mm-hmm. church control, the, the church has the kind of best schools in the area and the children might be denied access to those schools if he complains and all that. Right. And, um, And he also was some kind of child that was born out of wedlock in, you know, quote unquote, shameful circumstances himself. So he's got a complex relationship with that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. And she she just really packs in like a huge, a huge amount into a 100 page novella. And the language is quite spare. It's not complicated or difficult language. And it is in. Mm very moving and thought-provoking and yeah Dave you'll have to tell me about her short story collection that you read as well but uh, I would th- thoroughly recommend
2: this novella nice yeah that sounds good I, Rachel is obsessed with that book and she keeps telling me like read this book read this book and I'm like yeah yeah I'll get to it I'll get to it so I'm bumping it up uh even more than it already was but uh she got so late in the day by Claire Keegan for Christmas this year it's uh a really small book with three longer short stories in it. And I read it on like, I don't know, boxing day and the day after like two sittings, it was over. Uh, I thought it was wonderful. It's the first thing i read by her. And yeah, really like uh, really low-fi kind of prose, but she captures a lot of dense stuff in her writing in a very short amount of time. And I kind of felt like I was reading like a 19th century Russian literature or something like Chekhov or something is sort of what it felt like to read her work so yeah she's fantastic and I would I'm really looking forward to getting into that one
0: and did you pick this up Ben because you were a fan of her other stuff or was it just kind of a happenstance that you picked it up
1: I've never read any of her other stuff and a friend of mine uh, bought me a copy as a present and had, had and it was on his recommendation and you know oh, nice. i think i was on a train ride to devon and it's like it's classic train ride fair because it's like i can <laughs> probably read this but before i get off at exeter's yeah, David station good. you know yeah so um I feel so, so yeah.
2: accomplished you know i just read a book it's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> cool awesome what's her other she has another major book do you remember what it's called i can't remember. Ooh.
1: She just released uh, in what could potentially be seen as a bit of a publishing cash grab, like one short story in like small hardback format for like yeah. the Christmas market or whatever, and it was called "So Late in the Day," I think it was called. So that just came out. By yeah, me. that's the one
2: that I just yeah. read. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. But it's I worth saw, it. It's worth oh, okay. it. I saw Foster at the is shelf. the other one by her. Yeah,
0: because they're so small. Yeah. I, I actually, you know, as you know, like tiny books, so. Yeah. Uh, I think that's actually one of the appeals of it. It's not totally, 400 yeah. pages.
2: I had just come out of reading like a 770 page book right before that, uh, Sunhouse by David James Duncan. And it took me like from August until December to finish. It was just like kind of a slog. I read a couple of books like in the midst of that too, but then to just read one book in like
0: an hour and a half felt really lovely. <laughs> Is that a segue to your next one? Cause I assumed you were going to talk about the sun house.
2: It's actually not a segue. I put that in my kind of honorable mentions. Okay. Like I just wanted right. to like, to mention that I read this book because okay. uh, he's one of my more favorite writers historically. He's got a book called the brothers K that's yeah. like a top three, top five Imagine, novel yeah. of all time for me. Um, and this book was 29 years in the making since the brothers K <laughs> which came out in the early nineties. So, It's been like, whoa, David James Duncan's coming out with a novel. Finally, this is a lot of excitement. And David Peach was the editor on it. So like Michael Peach, sorry. And Michael Peach was the editor on it. (laughs) And uh, so like, I was very excited to read this. And I would say overall, I would give this book like a seven out of 10. It has really some really great characters and really great moments. But overall, I felt myself being quite often annoyed by like the over earnestness and it of some of the other characters that felt kind of like saccharine sappy in a lot of ways. And, and like very, very heavy handed with some of the religiosity stuff in it, spirituality stuff. So it, that was a kind of a hit and miss book for me. So I wouldn't put it in my top five, but I did spend a lot of time with it this year. <laughs> That's for sure. There's actually a, a listener of the show who's in Victoria and he was posting about it on Instagram and we had some back and forth and we're going to try and meet up for like a book beer soon and talk about sunhouse and other things but yeah um we're in threes now my number three this year would probably be the rabbit hutch by tess gunty Mm -hmm. uh this book won the national book award last year and i found it to be really radical it's a great book about a young woman who is like into kind of like missed christian mystic women the beguines i guess they're called and uh it's like a very strange story about her living with some other teenage kids who have come out of the foster system and like the weird stuff that happens in their story together. There's some stuff about her and a high school teacher having like a romantic relationship. And there's a very kind of like foregrounded climax of the book that we see on like page one. But so the whole story is kind of like unraveling that sort of mention of like what happens at the end. Uh, I think, Tess Gunty's prose is fantastic like I was just jaw-dropping a lot at like a sentence level of some of the like similes and metaphors that she writes um, I know that she's a big Wallace fan of her to talk really extensively about Wallace on other podcasts and things like that so uh, I would recommend The Rabbit Hutch* by Tess Gunty I thought it was great
0: Yeah, I also read this book, and it's not on my list, but I loved it. Mm -hmm. And I was talking, actually, uh, right before Christmas, I was talking with Stephen Moore about this book. Oh, yeah. Uh, And he brought it up to me saying he had just read it, and he said it struck him as the most Wallacean novel he had read since Wallace's death. Really? So that was pretty big... (laughs) um, praise i thought yeah and you know we both thought it was great that a book like this won the national book award which is pretty rare that a book that's got like you said a lot of weird stuff in it it's not it's not it doesn't feel mainstream and like if it wins the national book award it by definition it's like mainstream literary fiction yeah but it doesn't feel mainstream it feels very much um, of its own thing it's got uh, a lot of Sort of like, a, you know how Wallace had like a fictionalized version of Ohio, the great Ohio desert in Cleveland yeah, and Cleveland, yeah. the broom of the and system. Broom, yeah. She's kind of got that in her book as well of this True. fictionalized version of, is it South Bend, Indiana? Yeah, I think it's Indiana. South yeah. Bend, Indiana. Yeah. Um, and the park there and this, there are rabbits in it and like mm-hmm. kind of eco-terrorism. There's all kinds of stuff yeah. going on in this book. And, yeah, it's
2: quite violent. Um, There's like kind of weird occult stuff going on. Like,
0: yeah. yeah.
2: Um, um, it's kind of, it's pretty dark, I would say,
0: but, but I he also did an MFA at, uh, NYU, NYU yeah. with,
2: um, David Lipsky, David Lipsky, one of her profs. So, Yeah. He's yep, thanked so, in her acknowledgements. Right. So yeah,
0: it's pretty, cool pretty cool overlap. And I, I do think, um, you know, it's a fantastic book, I guess I didn't put it on my list because I think it came out like two years ago. Yeah. Know? That sounds about right. And just so happened. Maybe in my last other...
2: year. Yeah, maybe 2021. I well, know Brandon the... Hobson was on the selection committee for
0: uh, for the National Book Award that year. Yeah, I He's think it won in 2022. But yeah, um, either way, fantastic book. Uh, yeah. And I would love to talk about it more because there is a lot uh, of detail in it, a lot going on. I have a lot of yeah. like sticky notes on it. Yeah, yeah. That tracks. Um, what are we on number three now? Number,
2: t- yeah, number three, three from that. So,
0: my number three is uh, a book that came out earlier this year or in 2023, I should say, yeah. called Diana My Graphic Obsession by Sivan piatagorski Roth. Mm-hmm. And Sivan is someone who I met at the David Foster Wallace conference this year. Mm-hmm. And Sivan is a super talented artist uh, as well as a Academic, and his particular interest is in like rabbinical studies and gender, and Hmm. uh, there's all kinds of um, philosophy. He did a paper at the conference on uh, sort of LGBTQ issues in Infinite Jest. Oh, yeah. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm summarizing probably way too much here, but the book itself is about his obsession and. He's trans, trans transmasculine about uh, Princess Diana and obsession with Princess Diana and why Princess Diana was and is a sort of LGBTQ icon. Hmm. And so, like I say, it's a graphic novel, which, you know, I often in these wrap ups, I have at least one graphic novel on my list. Um, And there's one Dan Klaus has a new book called Monica mentioned, but I really like this book by Sivan. I like the art in it. Um, I like anything that's sort of a personal memoir history personal history um, and it you know it gets into some stuff which I didn't know a lot about because I've always had like a weird fascination also with like Princess Diana's death oh, yeah. and like what what that brought out in Americans especially mm-hmm. so the American perspective and something like that you know I think is super interesting and anyone who's who's I would say interested in Diana at all would love it. And it really is something like I was talking with Savon, how like there's a whole community amongst stamp collectors. Like the biggest person who's ever been big on a stamp is like Queen Elizabeth. Like Queen Elizabeth has been on more stamps than like any human being in the world. That makes sense. Like yeah. because of all the British empire, yeah. you know, Australia, India, and Africa all over the world. They've got Queen Elizabeth on the stamp. She was there for 70 years. Yeah. The sun um, never sets. But, you know, how short Diana's life was, there's a whole community in stamp collectors that are like big into Princess Diana stamps because okay. they sell. Yeah. And like every country in the world has made like Princess Diana stamps. Hmm. Um, so it, it touches like a lot of different communities. Like whatever community you're into, there's often like <laughs> there's people who are super, that into, right, the, yeah, super into that. Right. Yeah. Super into that. Like, um so anyways it's interesting to bring this up i didn't even think in advance of like oh yeah we would be talking to someone in london but yeah um ben any thoughts here on the the royal family or the death of queen elizabeth (laughs) (laughs) princess diana
1: i'm always astounded when you know people from far-flung places you know talking about princess diana and i think i i mean i remember i remember the day she died i was um I that was five true. or six years old, and I went downstairs, and I I taught myself how to use the TV. This is quite a a, a Wallace uh, style anecdote, but I taught myself how to use the TV because I, yeah, you yeah. know, when you're small, you wake up and you, I think I'd learn that my parents are in bed, you, so I just go down and watch TV until they wake up because I don't want to wake them up. Went downstairs, turned the TV on. All the kids' cartoons were cancelled because um, there was just non-stop rolling coverage of of Diana's death. And I went upstairs and woke my parents up and said, you know, the Prince, I think I said something like the princess of Wales is dead, but that's okay because we don't live in Wales or something. So I hadn't really understood. <laughs> I hadn't understood yeah. that the princess of Wales was sort of the princess of all of our hearts and the UK and whatever, you know, but, oh, yeah. um, but, and then I think my mom was so shocked. She started crying, even though she's not a Royalist at all. And, you know, it was obviously big news. And so, so yeah it was a, it was a big deal and yeah matt you know so so does the book excavate why she's a gay icon because i've never quite un- right. i yeah. I know she did work with like AIDS charities and i think she did right. something like she held someone's hand who was hiv positive and that was yeah. a really oh, yeah, a yeah. big thing right. at the time because big, people were so yeah. afraid to of that kind of you know contact yeah. with, you know so yeah
0: But I think generally she herself was uh, an iconoclast who did not fit in with others, right? She did not fit in with the royal family. And she was, you know, had this sort of outsider persona. And, you know, it's not like she was a working class person or whatever, she was not, but she was very much of the disposition to be sympathetic to those who were disaffected. Yeah. And I think that she, I, again, I'm simplifying it. Go read Savan's book for a first person point of view. And he, he really gets into the details on, on, on why this is. Um, but it's a very personal thing of, you know, the aesthetics that she had were very unique amongst the Royal family. And uh, like I say, her willingness to engage with AIDS patients in the 1980s was just unprecedented, you know. Uh, 1990s, hmm. um, that was still not a thing. Um, so, anyways, great job by Savan of putting this book together. I hope it gets more attention. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, my graphic obsession, Diana Savan. I need to
2: get Roth. into more graphic novels. It's like a form of literature that I've really not dug into much. I need to do that. Well,
0: I could, I could send you a whole list. Okay, awesome. <laughs> all right ben you're, cool. you're
1: up next number two ben okay i'm gonna go for something happened by joseph heller which is probably i'd say his second masterpiece really that i think most people read catch 22 and that's enough joseph heller for them and he's mm-hmm. sort of associated with that novel and there's not much curiosity to kind of scratch beneath the surface and see if he's done anything else of note and it's mm. been on my to read pile for a long time and i finally got around to it. it's quite a, it's quite a big novel it's maybe like 570 pages in, in my edition so you know and it's it's a lot of text because it's essentially a dramatic monologue for 570 pages um mm. and it's quite madmenish in its setup that there's okay. this kind of <laughs> mid to high ranking uh business person who has a very kind of office bound life in i'm gonna say the 1970s and there's all sorts of office politics and shenanigans going on he's having he's very casually admits to having various affairs on the go um and uh and yeah so it's it's quite different from catch-22 it's not it's not a military novel. It's an, it's a, it's an office. It's an office novel really. Uh, And
0: so this is so funny. I have to interrupt because I was just reading this book, like in the past few days. Oh really? And (laughs) this is so fucking weird. And I, I love this book because, you know, I have a particular interest in like fiction writers who've had office jobs um, and have had uh, this kind of same experiences that I've had of having to like, have a day job most writers do but like not a lot of them write about it very well um or in a way that i find relatable um and he had worked you know as a file clerk before the war and then was in the war and then afterwards got this job as a copywriter at an advertising agency and coincidentally i learned it was the same advertising agency that the writer mary higgins clark worked at before she became a writer um, huh. Just a weird coincidence. A lot of writers go into copywriting, you know, at ad agencies to pay the bills. So it's inevitable that you would work with someone talented uh, in in New York. But um, I, I'm just I'm kind of shocked that you brought up this book because not a lot of people talk about this book. Huh. You know, I feel like you hear a lot more about Catch Twenty um, Two. So when I finished that book, I went and read the Paris Review interview with him again. Um, which I think, like you said, is like mid-70s, something like that. Um, and he talks about his process of writing is like to come up with a first line. He's like, he has to know the first line mm. of the book and the second line or and then see how far he can go with it before it peters out and usually has to know the ending line as well. And for this book, do you, do you have it handy? Do you want to read the first line of the yeah. book? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, you have the book in? All yeah, right. let's go. The, Luckily idea yeah
0: the first line is phenomenal. Yeah,
1: I get the Willies right. when I see go, closed go doors.
0: How great is that? <laughs> that's it. That's funny that's yeah, great. Um, and he talks about he had written another line that ended up uh, later on in the book about um the, the, the pe- other people in the, in the, the story. but there was a quote in that that I highlighted. I wrote down, I copied it down. he says, I don't have a philosophy of life or a need to organize its progression. My books are not constructed to say anything, which <laughs> I highly related to that. And that sort of reflected in the title of the book, like something happened. Uh, you know, they, they often said like in the seventies, like nothing happened. And so his was like a retort that like, no, something did. Happen. Uh, yeah.
2: Um, I've never read Catch-22, which is a shameful admission. Which should I start with? Should I read that first or this one? Oh,
0: Catch-22 is a
2: fucking classic. Yeah, Yeah, well, I know. It's like in my school library. There's like a whole novel set, a class set. How to do it?
0: I feel like Something Happened is the more grown-up book, though. Okay. Um, Like I'm more interested in that now than I was like Catch-22 in my 20s. Yeah, okay. Cool. Ben, I feel terrible that I'm like, oh, you guys are talking about it, and I'm like you bring up your own book, and now I'm fucking dominating the conversation. No, Sorry.
1: that's that. That's the beauty of dialogue, isn't it? So you know we're in dialogue with each uh-huh. other, and you know, so that that's lovely. And yeah, I'm 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 delighted that you're also uh, reading it. But have you listened to? Have you ever listened to him? Because I I put his name in on YouTube. He's a brilliant speaker, and he's gone in oh, the seventies. Yeah. I think he went round in you know, some smart person in various colleges, like I don't know whether it was like the Students' Writers' Association of UCLA or something, but they had the smart idea to invite him and also record it for posterity. And he's like a stand-up comic. He's absolutely hilarious. And he's got this brilliant, I don't know, I, is it a New York accent, a kind of Jewish New York accent? I don't know. But whatever it is, he, he sat. He he's got this incredible voice He's incredibly dry, very funny. Uh, and it's just, at, if you, if you kind of, yeah, if you've got a spare hour, just like, and you haven't already just um, look him up. Cause he's brilliant. And there's, there's multiple recordings of him and they're all worth listening to. And he reads out bits from the novel
2: and stuff. Yeah. Maybe we'll get a monthly audio newsletter, mostly about
0: nothing podcast hey, about. Hey, just that's, a color that's a good, that's a damn good idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I am working on another one of those. But, hey, nice. Um, that is a great tip. And you know, that, that thing where I said, you know, he doesn't really have a philosophy of life. He's not really trying to say anything in a way that quote, and some parts in the book reminded me of like the movie office space and that like Peter's dream in office space is like, what would you do if you had nothing? It's like, just do nothing. (laughs) You don't need a million dollars. uh, right, Right. But, but that, that idea of like, just, I would fucking do what I'm doing now, but just without the job. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I I find it as like um, a universal desire almost.
1: Matt, would you agree that um, it's also got very um, inventive use of brackets in this book? He's a big fan of bracketed asides.
2: What year was this book about? Yeah.
1: I think 1974 it was, says it was per- first published in the UK. Okay. I think the bra- the brackets in this as well are genius because I if I can't find I haven't got an example to hand but it's basically like it's a contradictory secondary monologue to the primary monologue. So it'll be like I feel bad that my son got sent home from school today brackets I don't or I don't really, you know. So it's like <laughs> Okay it's that kind of thing but i've got just the the the, this paragraph i think sums up the kind he's brilliant at like dissecting office culture so he says in the office in which i work there are five people of whom i am afraid each of these five people is afraid of four people excluding overlaps for a total of 20 and each of these 20 people is afraid of six people making a total of 120 (laughs) people who are feared by at least one person each of these 120 people is afraid of the other 119 and all of these 145 people are afraid of the 12 men at the top who helped found and build the company and now own and direct it.
0: Yes. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And, and it reminds me a bit also of Christian to book, which we talked about oh, before as yeah. the, the apologies and office novel. Yeah. Um, um, something happened anything else on this book man there's so much going on in this book that i love uh do you want to anything else that you can think of yeah
1: yeah i think it probably has to come with a health warning that it's a deeply cynical novel Mm. (laughs) like one of the most cynical things i've ever read
2: oh wow do you feel like uh you're like uh, i don't know your soul being attacked by it on some level like it's like watching when you watch a lot of curb your enthusiasm you kind of take a dark view of humanity (laughs) at least i do you know they say when you into your regular thought process
1: you know they say like when you read a book a good book reads you i think there is an uncomfortable Mm. conversation to be had with yourself (laughs) when reading this book like am i this is he telling me that we're all like this or is he kind of like a comic over exaggeration of of that archetype
0: uh yeah Man, I think I'm just more cynical than you because I felt like it was spot on. <laughs>
2: You're like, finally somebody who gets me. Yeah.
0: God, Maybe I'm too cynical. I mean, it's a good question. Um, probably, probably I am.
1: It's no. also, it's also very Freudian in, in, in the, I mean, you know, it seems to be a theme of, uh, of my, of my choices, but there is like this sort of pervading sexual frustration running through it where he's fixated on this kind of, um incident in his young adulthood where there's uh, an older woman i think in in the office when he's a a junior young person in the office and she's kind of giving him the wink and the nod she's up for a bit of whatever but he can he doesn't have the he doesn't have the balls to kind of consummate this you know Mm. thing that is and he he is obsessed as an older person looking back he's obsessed at this moment of sexual frustration so it's got this kind of Freudian <laughs> frustration
2: running through oh, it yeah. as well. Yeah. Huh. Sounds funny. All
0: right, Dave. You're like up.
2: Cool. Uh, my number two, which was a book that I was reading. I was like in the middle of reading last year when we recorded this episode. So I talked about it briefly there, but I was, I had just sort of gotten into it, it as the Netanyahu's by Joshua Cohen, uh, which won the Pulitzer prize last year. Uh, this book is w- really fun and wonderful and it kind of chronicles a professor in New York who's like a professor professor of Jewish studies and he's at this like small, you know, college or whatever and like most of the novel is him sort of being groomed by his senior faculty members to like host this visiting scholar who is... Uh, you know, the title character, so Benjamin Netanyahu's father, who is the current prime minister of Israel. So he, Bibi, is in the novel, but he's a child in the book. So it's set in like the 1960s. Um, and it's about this visit from this visiting scholar and his family to this other professor's house. Um, the actual visit is a very small percentage of the book, like the last maybe quarter or fifth. And the, the you know, first of the book is like the lead up to this like anticipated arrival and the stuff that happens in the last section of the book is very funny and off the wall and just very ridiculous. And it makes for a really wonderful time reading. So I would recommend, I mean, it's very kind of sort of apt to the moment that we're in right now with Israel um, where if you can satirize and make fun of uh, this person you know, it probably feels pretty good to do that. And uh, I think it captures that in a, in a way that's pretty fun and interesting. Has anyone had a chance to read this one?
0: I have not. Yeah. Um, I tried it's pretty reading... quick. It's like
2: 200 ish mm. pages. So it's not, yeah. it's not a big commitment.
0: I tried reading his previous book wits. I just couldn't get into it. Um, that was the first thing i read by him. So
2: it's my first experience.
0: Um, and for listeners who don't know, Dave, you briefly lived in Israel. You want to talk about that? Yeah, in twenty fourteen, we lived in Tel Aviv for six months. Um,
2: Rachel was doing her master's like field work in peace and conflict studies at the time, so she was working with a Israeli Palestinian peace building group that worked with like youth, particularly. Um, so we were She's there. Busy
0: right now. She's busy right now. So.
2: Uh, <laughs> her current field of work is not in that area. She's more in like the health uh, health sector now. But uh, yeah, it's certainly been a major topic of discussion in our home recently. Uh, we got there, and like two days later, the, the war Operation Protective Edge started. So there were missiles coming to Tel Aviv, five missile interceptions a day. I was panicking. I was like, Googling flights to Greece. Let's get the hell out of here. And then after like three or four days, it was like just totally normal. The big air siren go off and just kind of like roll over in bed and look at each other and be like, oh, this will be fine. The Iron Dome will take care of this uh whereas like three days before that i was like freaking out you know so it's it's it was a really interesting exercise in adaptation for me like just what you can get used to very quickly as a human being um so, yeah super interesting place um it's a heartbreaking place in many ways obviously this is like the most extreme form of that that we've ever seen and so little bit of a personal connection to that the Netanyahu's. Netanyahu's. Dave am I right in thinking that
1: there are these kind of lecture bits within the novel there's someone giving uh a, like a, or there, there's about the history of Israel there are these kind of
2: digressions right yeah I think that sounds familiar it's been about a year since I finished reading it so it's a little bit on the hazier side but yeah, there's a lot of stuff about like scholarship and like history of Israel scholarship because, you know, those are like the areas of these two two guys that they're in. So, yeah, there's like some scholarly, like interesting kind of stuff in it too. Yeah.
0: Um, I will also say that we will put these lists of books into the show notes of the episode. So, yeah. if you want to go back and refer to them, quick um, reference, yeah, we'll have our totally. own lists in there. Um, my number two is this book called Chaotic Good by Lee Klein and lee is uh, an incredible writer who i really just discovered his fiction writing i had followed him on twitter uh for many years but not had not picked up um his books uh, i'd known him actually as a translator he had translated Hi. um horatio castellanos moya's uh, book called revulsion about thomas Bernhard, um and he had won a big award for that but his fiction writing is like extremely up my alley and the sort of like plot summary of this book uh, is about a, a guy who's a dad traveling to a fish show in New York. And that's basically the PH jam band. Yeah. And he had, you know, the title is obviously from like Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I was going to say. Chaotic Good. Yeah. And he had written another book called Neutral Evil. Oh, yeah. Um, but funny. this book is... It really has nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. Really, it is, (laughs) uh, you know, about it's about a fictionalized version of himself, and uh, I really related to the style of writing and also just the way it reminded me a bit of like Knausgaard style of like it's novelization, but it's it's first person, Um, and I'll I'll want to read a little bit that sort of tells you gives you a flavor of the writing, but also tells you like what kind of story he's writing here. Um, so this is from page 48. He says since then, until now, the first weeks of 2020, thumbing this out on my phone while I take the early train, I've been feeling like I can't even commit to keeping at it and doing it for its own sake. The standard palliative justifications, all the talk about books and writing immersion and related news and activities as though it were some religious sect, The problem being that I would thought of it as a religious practice, which has nothing to do with the practices of publishing, confronting the challenges of no longer being all that young, not being representative of a place or a type of person, and writing in a style not of interest to those interested in experimental prose, but also not accessible or formulaic enough to please readers accustomed to conventional narrative. On top of that, the stories I wrote weren't stories so much as static opportunities for digressive associative rumination. And I really liked that phrase as that's sort of what I'm interested in most right now. Is not like your standard novel, but yeah. static opportunities for digressive, associative rumination. <laughs> and this is kind of like what your book is feels yeah, like Matt a little bit, right? Yeah. You can yeah. see why I'm interested in this. Totally. Um, but his is a very unique, you know, point of view. And like, what else is a novel but like a chance for you to give your point of view in the world mm-hmm. or to share. A, a story that is, um, you know, sweet generous, like unique. And uh, I really loved this book. I want to go back and read his other books. He's got another one coming out this year. Uh, we got to get him on the show, Dave. Oh, cool. He's, he's I really see he's great. He's like
2: an Iowa writer's workshop graduate. I've just Googled him.
0: <laughs> yeah, but like I was saying earlier, most writers don't make their money from creative writing, right? They sure. have a day job, Yeah, have an office job. And so there is some of that struggle, you know, of like, how to be a father, how to be a working man, but also like fulfill some of your, uh, creative yeah. urges in life. So, cool. uh, highly recommend it. If you like the kind of fiction that I do, you will like this book. Chaotic right. good. Chaotic good. Incline. Excellent. Wonderful. All
2: ben, right. You got a, you got a top read of Final the Final
0: round. Final round. I think in the this period the... that's <laughs> fine. That's not, not right a joke. <laughs> in the <laughs>
1: In the spirit of the podcast, uh, I should probably go for uh, the instructions by Adam Levin because you know I'd be oh, remiss to not happened. talk yeah. about it. and <laughs> you've you've both read it and it you know it came up. It, you know for those listening who aren't familiar with their um concavity law it comes up in the very first uh podcast you did where you discuss
0: you oh, discuss yeah.
1: <laughs> you know along with you know Sergio de la Pava I think comes up and other sort of fa- should we say founding texts of the podcast you know so I've been meaning to read it for ages and ages and ages and obviously it obviously you know i had the sense that it was a a readable thousand page book it wasn't you know like uh, infinite jest like
2: infinite jest or something
1: (laughs) but obviously still you're like i should probably take a couple of weeks off work to you know do do justice to this and um and also timely because i think the the bar mitzvah edition is sort of coming out mm-hmm. this year so that's kind yeah, of far. I think
2: this year is what Adam said yeah
1: yeah um but I so I'll, ha- so I'll like. have to buy a second sort of decoy copy uh but yeah me too yeah. but um so obviously it's hard it's how, how can you summarize your thoughts on like this like beast of beast of a novel but I guess for those mm-hmm. who are listening who don't who don't know about it, it's it's um told from the perspective of a are we going to say eight-year-old?
2: Is is he eleven or twelve? Okay, this feels like my instinct. I reread it last year, but I that's that's my what my memory is giving a, me right a, now. Should sure. we say a
1: sophisticated young person, <laughs> yeah. a sort of precociously he's very, talented? He's very yeah.
2: precocious, yeah, hyper precocious, yeah.
1: <laughs> Who? Um is Jewish but I think doesn't attend a Jewish school has been expelled from various Jewish schools and is now expelled attending a sort of several
2: yes yeah. yeah uh and often for like la- acts of <laughs> violence and acts of like insubordination or like um borderline like um blasphemy I guess you could say
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and I guess you could say uh A psychological term which was once leveled at me, uh, and that I think also applies to the main characters. That he perhaps has um, oppositional defiance. I think we could call it. Um, So problems with authority, (laughs) being told what to do, um, and he perhaps has a messiah complex as well. Where you know, in a clever way, the the book toes the line between is he or isn't he the messiah? You know, it sort yeah. of holds its clar- cards close to its chest until the end and, and possibly beyond yeah. the end as to whether or not he is, you know, uh, a messiah figure, but he is, so he's sort of yeah. attending school. He's been put in this kind of uh, restrictive cage, like bit of punitive, essentially prison within the school for disruptive children. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, And is, is, is sort of surreptitiously assembling some kind of army as a side hustle or during school hours as well. (laughs) And there's this kind of text, which he is writing, which is about, um, I guess there's kind of religious stuff, but it's also like a sort of, um, handbook, terrorists handbook of how to use, assemble a makeshift weapon from a discarded penny gun, soda bottle, a penny gun. Exactly. And, um, and the, the, there's various antagonists within the novel, like um, the person, the sort of bureaucratic jo- minister, jocks. jocks and uh, boy star, <laughs> who is the kind of boy star, uh, uh, pop star, Justin teen Bieber, pop idol. YouTube yeah, exactly. Star, kind of, yeah. And he, he is due to perform later in the week at a kind of pep rally for the, for the jocks for their, um, cause they've got a big, uh, basketball game coming up i think and um yeah. it's ju- it's just like you know the it probably gets com- compared to infinite jest uh, a lot but it's its own thing and it's it's completely unique totally. and br- brilliant and compelling and hilarious as well really
0: funny That's
2: so funny yeah yeah
0: and one of the amazing things about it to me is like the whole thing is really set in like four days like yeah it's a very
2: short time span. i mean there's like flashbacks and stuff but yeah like the action of the book is the action of the
0: book is like within a week and
2: there's a romance story too as well with a a gentile girl that Gurion benjuda maccabee falls in love with hard (laughs) yeah (laughs) and his feelings about she's jewish or not and things like that the parent his parents are quite compelling characters too like his father's like a like a defense lawyer i think and his mother was in the idf uh israeli defense force so yeah there's a lot of interesting stuff going on about religion and israel and i think it's kind of maybe adam's way of like deconstructing his upbringing a little bit and how he squares himself in relationship to the religion that he was you know sort of the community that he was raised with and yeah it's great I enjoyed it the second time a lot too. There's one sentence
1: I picked out, which I think relates to, you said there's this kind of love story going on. And uh, so there's a line in the novel, it says along with perfect justice and the end of death, being near her was the simplest thing I had ever wanted, which is a kind of a nice line <laughs> thing.
2: <laughs> That's really cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: I was just going to say it's, it's funny how, you know, we didn't talk about our lists in advance and plan these things. And yet this like through line of Judaism and like rabbinical studies, yeah. of Israel as is yeah, like probably the today. third or fourth book that we've mentioned that has this kind of overlap. It's just yeah. coincidental, I would say. But, yeah. um, so and also highly like,
2: erotically charged fiction and uh, <laughs> Judaism are the two for our episode today.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably some more, but uh, some violence in there for sure, like, um, some humor, so all kinds of other themes too but
2: yeah i would say like for the instructions the climax of that novel is one of the most memorable climactic scenes in like all of literature i think it's really like long and extended as well so it's there's a good payoff to that book it is very formidable and intimidating looking but it is much more forgiving when you get into it than you might think at first blush uh
0: okay dave you're up next.
2: Okay. Uh, probably my most uh, favorite or, or close to it, favorite read of the year was by Benjamin Labatut called The Maniac. And this is a writer that I had not heard of before this year, at least as far as I can like really remember. Um, and I want to give a shout out to a listener of the show named Cameron Waller, who is from my same hometown, from Kelowna. We've never met before but he has become an agent at penguin random house this year in Toronto. So he moved from Kelowna to Toronto in last year. And he sent me an email earlier this year that was like, Hey, I got this new job. Um, I got this book that you and Matt have to read. I think you'd love it. I'm sending it to you. Like, what's your address? And I was like, cool. And I took this book with me to Ireland this summer and I read it in a very short amount of time and was so compelled by it. It is Basically, like a history, like a novelized history of the 20th century in like math and physics, like the biggest heavy hitters in those fields. Uh, it mostly follows John von Neumann, who came to be like a very important figure in the Manhattan Project. So it follows kind of like these characters. They're like it's big, like mathematical discoveries. And then a lot of the characters end up uh, on the Manhattan Project. And then the book gets into stuff about AI at the end, Matt, which I know that you're very interested in. And particularly this one AI program called AlphaGo, which was made to play the game Go. And there's this whole bit at the end that's kind of like in the appendix about this South Korean Go master, Lee Sedol, who ends up playing a series of matches against AlphaGo. And it also mentions this documentary about this. So I was reading and I was like, you know, I'm really into like strategy games and high level competition and with those and all that stuff. And so it mentions the documentary and I like immediately went and watched the whole documentary like that night in one sitting and just became obsessed by like this whole stuff about go and AI and
0: board games. Who knew Dave? I know.
2: Right. Exactly. So this like hit a lot of buttons for me. (laughs) Do you play go? Have you played it? I've never played go. I have no idea how to play it other than like what I've learned from this book and the documentary.
0: Um, so I, this was going to be on my list, but I haven't finished it yet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I read his first book when we cease to understand the world, which I think also won the Pulitzer prize or won something big. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm getting it mixed. Maybe
2: not the Pulitzer, but I think is, is really well regarded. I would well really received, like to read you know? it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I, you didn't read that one. First, I've not or? read that one. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. It's very similar, I would say, in its themes and structure. And yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot in there about famous physicists and scientists, and that's basically the whole, no- like, is it a novel? Like, I love these sort of yeah. hybridized works that yeah. are like, uh, it's hard to tell really what's fiction and what is embellishment or just straight up documentary. Totally. Uh, just yeah. well, well-structured documentary in a way. Yeah. Um, But it doesn't have the trappings of an academic book, like it doesn't have like footnotes and chapter headings and stuff. Like it is told like a novel.
2: Yeah, and it doesn't get too heavy into like mathematical computation and like particle physics in a way that like you know someone who has no background on that would be just like, wow, this is boring, you know?
0: Yeah, Um, it's a little bit actually like the Lipsky book a little bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's true. Anyways, the. go i had one little anecdote about it which was i had this interest in it back when i first discovered the wallace l listserv because the guy who ran it was also like super into playing go Uh Oh, cool! Uh, it was a guy named dan schmidt who was a video game designer and i'd never heard of this game like growing up i didn't know anyone you know we played like chess checkers maybe pente have you ever heard of pente no um but i'd never played go Mm -hmm. and uh that it was through him that I discovered it. I mean, I do have an interest in chess, yeah. um, medium interest in like not strong, heavy chess player and competitor. Yeah. Like probably not even that good, but I'm more interested in it than like maybe any other board game. Yeah. And then it was just surprising to me that there were so many other people really into Go, and that like you would need a fucking computer to play it. Like it yeah. looks as simple it's... as like checkers almost, but yeah, it's but not. it's
2: got like a lot of a lot of pieces like you did need quite a large board and there's like a lot of spots that you can put your, well, it's just one colored rock here. They're black it, or white, right? is it
0: black or white, which is like yeah. binary, right? Like yeah. that's why computers I think are good at processing it is Probably, there's yeah. a binary code to it. It's either right. black or white on or off. And it's kind another. of like
2: a ter- It seems like a territorial, um, domination game. So you right. aim to have more territory covered, like surrounding your opponents. Defensive strategy too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah this book was great uh sh- so check out on instagram cameron's bookshelf that's cameron's like bookstagram and he's posting great stuff on there all the time too so now that he's like a literary agent at penguin random house he's sent us a few other emails too about like hey i got a book for you check it out so uh that's that's really cool so thank you to cameron appreciate it
0: uh, uh, matt how about you You got a final right. final book M- for us final year? book 2023 this book day's work by chris Batchelder, chris Batchelder, i think it's bachilder and yeah. jennifer Hable, and they are a married couple oh cool and uh this book was published by norton it came out um a few months ago and it is exactly up my alley it's sort of um mostly about Herman Melville, and Moby Dick. Oh, Um, then it would be, yes. But it's also told in the style of like almost like a David Markson novel, like very short paragraphs, all broken up. Uh, This book
2: was written just for you, I think. Pretty much,
0: pretty much. And (laughs) And others, but
2: yeah.
0: (laughs) I absolutely love it. And it's written, like I say, in that very sort of dry, descriptive, short sentences, but there is a lot about their home life, their marriage Hmm. as a couple. It's interesting to see like a couple writing a book together. What does that look like? Like who's talking right now? Like, is it the husband or the wife? And it's, they try to make it clear most of the time, like, oh, my husband said this, or my wife did this today. But all of it is also takes place during COVID Um, sort of stuck at home, going down these rabbit holes of, uh, the biggest sort of Melville biographer is a guy named Herschel Parker. Like if you know anything about Melville studies, like that dude is the man. Okay. And he has this pretty active blog or did for many years post everything about uh, Melville that he could find on there. And so a lot of the book is them sort of taking issue with that shit. So Hmm. I, and and calling him out in some ways um, and doing their, you know, comparing it to other, so much has been written on Melville and when I was preparing for this episode, I went and looked the book back up on uh, Amazon because I was I was actually re- recommending it to Stephen Moore. And I noticed Herschel Parker had written a review of the book on Amazon, which is pretty scathing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they did not consult him at all before they published this. And in the book, most of the time he's just referred to as the biographer. Uh, and only in the acknowledgments of the book do they say, oh, the biographer you know, we want to acknowledge him. He's invaluable to this book, Herschel Parker. Hmm. Um, But the, the little bits of anecdotes, the little bits of trivia about uh, Moby Dick and Melville in here are just fucking fantastic. And, you know, they, they drop in all kinds of other literary references, all kinds of um, stuff about original research and American literature and I could say the style of it is what makes it for me. That book is just, um, I had followed Be- Chris Batchelder's story or his career. When he first came out, he had a book called Bear v. Shark that was sometimes compared to Wallace. And I read it and I thought it was okay. I didn't really keep up with his career that much uh, until this book came out and I saw anything about, like, I love books about Moby Dick. Um, anything like that, I will pick up and read. And I just so happened to be like, holy shit, this is like a David Markson-style book about Moby Dick. <laughs> and so that that was like catnip to me, and I yeah. absolutely love it. it e- either necessary... of you heard of this book? No, I haven't. Is it a necessary
2: of... prerequisite to read Moby Dick bef- to enjoy this
0: book, would you say? Uh, you haven't read Moby Dick?
2: I still haven't read Moby Dick.
0: <laughs> All right, my new number one is Moby Dick by Herman Melville. <laughs> Have you read Moby covered. Dick, Ben? I haven't. Oh yeah. Okay. So, so, so like, Dave, me, and you,
1: resolutions for twenty twenty four. Ah,
2: yeah. Jesus it's like Christ. kind of like always on the back burner. Like, ah, I should read that book, but like, I don't really want to.
0: Dude, it is. It is so different than what your expectations are okay, of that book, okay, yeah. and. It, I guarantee you, everyone who I know who has read it in adulthood is like, holy shit, that book was funny, accessible, not what I thought it would be. (laughs) And it is not like some dusty old book from the 1800s. It very much reads like there's comedy in it, there's humor. It is not a hard book to read at all. Um, That's helpful. It is absolutely a requirement to read. Yeah, I know. Okay. Good. Well, Ma- that helps. Did you ever Bad. see the movie uh, On Golden Pond? Do you know that? I'll get back to that. Go I ahead. Have not then. seen that.
1: Though. No, I haven't read oh, Moby Dick, but I tell you what, I have read Bear vs Shark by Chris Batchelder. Actually, really? Oh, uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. What did you think? You
1: liked it? Can Can I use a Matt Bookerism? T- tell say, us more. It's like a p- just alright for me, dog. <laughs> 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 Which I think you've re- you've retired please that. Please. you used to say yeah. that more, and it's it seems right to have been dropped. Me, it's yeah. Just just alright
0: for me. I need dog. to bring it back. <laughs>
1: but um yeah so i agree with you that like i think it was fine and it felt like you know file under kind of slightly don delillo ish kind of type stuff mm-hmm. but you've you've piqued my interest with day's work so i feel like i should give Batchelder another go. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah i that mean that's cool. cool i mean obviously if you're a fan of melville or moby dick you will like this better i think um i brought up on golden pond it's jane fonda and uh, you know her her father Henry Fonda plays this crotchety old man and she's bringing her stepson and new husband to meet her parents and he's sort of interrogating him as this old man and he's like your son's never read Treasure Island and he sends him up to bed with a copy of Treasure Island and that's how I sort of feel like right now your Moby co-host Day. has never read Moby Dick <laughs> I'm just gonna send you up to bed with a copy of it right now
2: Moby Dick was really um, good. It, it was good.
1: famously what was it like only five hundred copies were ever printed in Melville's own lifetime and it was a complete failure of oh, publication really? and he never he never lived to see it success really. Is that right, yeah. Matt?
0: Right, right. So heartbreaking. He, he um, basically quit being a writer and moved to New York and became a customs inspector and hmm. stopped writing. He did publish a few things later in life, like a weird poem. Um, but he died, you know, not as a famous writer Obscurity. at all. Wow. Uh, and it was, you know, not until after he died in the early 1900s was his reputation sort of resurrected um, as a, you know, what we would call now as a classic. But at the time, it was not considered, it was like some adventurous bullshit novel about the South Pacific and whaling or something. It was like.
2: This happens to so many writers. It's really an unfair, like, industry. Yeah, you
0: know. I mean, even Faulkner, in a way, there's a famous story. The um, what's the the critic um, Irving Howe is the one who put together the like portable Faulkner, and Faulkner himself was considered like a regional, like oh, if you're just interested in the American South, but it was Irving Howe who was you know a New York Jewish intellectual who really championed um, Southern writers, including mm-hmm. Faulkner, as being like representative of the American voice. Um, but I mean, Moby Dick, you know, there's, there's graphic novel versions. There's all these different versions, public domain. Anyone can sort of illustrate it, but the writing of it is just so freaking great and hilarious. I probably reread that book at least twice and I would reread it again. Um, Starting with like, he starts on land, right? Like trying to find a boat to get onto, they get on the boat. And then you're on page like 200 by the time they're even at sea. Right. And, I've did one like rereading where it just started then, like when you oh. actually meet <laughs> me Ahab, into the, into the action. right. Okay. But I mean, it, the, the first part is fantastic. And like, I mm-hmm. could just reread that first like 200 pages, mm-hmm. but when you actually meet Ahab and you're like on the water out at sea, no land in sight, it's like, then the good shit starts. Okay. Um, it's fantastic, man. I love that book. So anyways, days work. Chris Batchelder. That was my number one. Cool. Um, we're at about 90 awesome. minutes. So yeah. I feel like that was pretty good. If we had done it, do you want to do your honorable mentions? Do you, you want to throw in a few extra titles there? Ben, do you have a few others on your list? Yeah. Like, in like two minutes.
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, last Samurai, Helen DeWitt, which again is one that comes mm. up in, in our circles nice and such a good yeah. book such a good book uh, yeah, like very that. readable i think it's it looks again it looks kind of formidable from the outside and it's actually like it does yeah and it's kind of stories within stories within stories there's a lot of storytelling going on sort of micro stories within the within the novel yeah. and there's the you know another theme of our conversation there's a kind of precocious young child who is a sort yes. of polyglot exactly. genius yeah. um and yeah. is is learning ancient greek so they can read the odyssey i think um in its original in the original <laughs> um and that holds that character like 11 or something younger i think even younger than that yeah, younger, yeah. and then and, and then there is yeah, there, yeah. there are these stories being told within the novel that are like um about people that you think are real people. And there was one about maybe like a scientist and I was convinced it was real and I wikipedia it and there was just no trace of this. And she'd written it so convincingly. <laughs> I was like, I'm sh- this just sounds so real. Like this person must've existed, never yeah, existed. Yeah. Like n- the only trace of the name on the internet is like traces back to the North, the last yeah, samurai yeah, on to, Google. Oh, yeah. so, so that was amazing.
2: I'm, I'm glad I finally uh, got around to that. Um, I was worried that that was going to be the case in the Maniac, which is what I was just talking about. But then I like did you know a deep dive Wikipedia thing after I finished the book, and I was like, okay, these are all real people, cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, this guy's like the father of computing, basically. Yeah,
0: yeah right. and I I would put in a plug for Lee Constantino's book, The Last Samurai, I reread, which I found really. Uh, accessible and added a lot to my appreciation of that book. So I learned a lot from Lee Constantino's reading of The, nice. uh, of the Last Samurai. It's a fantastic book. I'm
1: keen cool. to read that, uh, that book. And I know just from uh, without reading the book that she had a terrible time at publication and, mm-hmm. you know, she thought she was owed money from her publisher, but then she got like a big bill from her publisher and it was actually the other way around that she for some reason owed her publisher a huge amount of money. This Tom Cruise film, The Last Samurai, came out around the same time, so that kind of ruined oh, yeah. the publicity <laughs> the of it. It had nothing yeah. to do yeah. with that, um, and there yeah. was a typesetting issue where because there's quite a lot of sort of kanji Japanese stuff in the in the novel, and that was all ruined on first printing or so. so there was like a, a calamity, uh, a comedy of errors, Debacle, was, yeah. yeah.
2: Um, which I remember, I think, re- I remember looking yeah. into that, yeah. Was um, it so published
0: that, by Miramax Books or like Harvey Weinstein? Was yes. It? Oh, really? I think it was. Yeah, yeah. it was a Harvey Weinstein issue. Yeah. Oh well. Uh, um,
1: and true. I, uh, I would give a shout out for the Inquisitors Manual by Antonio Lobo Antunes, which is a Portuguese kind of book in the modernist tradition about um a deposed minister in a decaying Portugal. Sort of during and after the Carnation Revolution in the seventies, which I didn't know anything about. But is you know the there was a kind of fascist government, I think, and then there was kind of a left-wing military coup to remove that government that brought its own problems, and then eventually Portugal transitioned into into democracy. But it's kind of set around that period, and um, his names kind of come up as like a potential Nobel. Prize winner in, in you know mm-hmm. in future years so i was kind of keen to to dive in and that was really good i'd recommend that um
2: cool
0: i think i own this book or and i've read another Antunes book that is really short is, is this a really short book no or... this
1: is about 400 pages this okay. one
0: okay yeah. well the, the one that i read was like 50 pages it was a very short anyways keep going. um,
1: <laughs> um wasn't definitely wasn't a favorite, but I read Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pynchon and uh, nearly killed <laughs> me in the
2: process. <laughs> yeah, have either no, of you two read it? Looking book. I have not read that one. No. Uh,
0: I mean, I read it like when I was in college, when it came out and it was, you know, written in a sort of obscure, obsolete vernacular. <laughs> <laughs> um, Friscalating dust. And it's light. very hard to follow some of just like what the fuck is going on mm-hmm. um and some of it is just too obscure for me like I, i'm interested in that the idea of it but the the like you say the actuality of the reading is pretty just not pleasurable for me dog mm-hmm. so
2: <laughs> i've had against the day on my shelf for like 15 oh that's a different years. beast that's that a read good, it.
0: that's a good beast yeah okay you should have read that one well, I've not Mason, read Mason and Dixon either, so uh, you can okay. skip Mason and Dixon for all yeah, I care. Okay, it's okay. Funny, first couple the, pages are only.
1: good. In the pinching community, it, re, there are people that swear by Mason and Dixon, and some people, yeah, yeah more against the day-minded. So as a sidebar, uh, do you ever do that thing where you, you get a secondhand book, either from you know a charity shop or online, and there's someone... To, not in a creepy way but there's there's someone's name in the front cover because it's the previous mm-hmm. owner and i always try and track yeah. down who that person is and oh, find find, <laughs> find them on linkedin and say like what's this how how did this book end up in my hands like did you read it did you love it did you hate it like what when did you read it like and i've had sort of limited success with that where um I, so uh, the, the reason I say that is because there was someone's name in Mason and Dixon. And I tried to add them on LinkedIn, but they, they never accepted the invite. Absolutely fine. They're prerogative. They don't have to accept it. if They don't want to, That that's where it ends. You know, if they, uh, but I, um, for um, the Savage Detectives by Roberto Bolaño, I had the most unadi- unedifying conversation where I found the person um, <laughs> whose name was in the front and I added them on LinkedIn. It took them about six months and they accepted the invitation. And I was like, did what? Did you read it? What did you What do you think? And she was like, "Yeah, I guess I can't really remember anything about it." It's like you can't remember anything about the Savage Detectives. <laughs> it's a, it's a crazy book, and I didn't want to like push yeah. and be like, "You're going to have to give me a better review than that." That's not acceptable, you know. Give me two thousand words by you know by Monday or whatever. <laughs> but
2: um, so I, so hilarious. I wouldn't necessarily recommend, to recommend track those people down. Yeah, okay, the, doing them. yeah um (laughs) i like that you do that though that's an interesting uh that's an interesting little story yeah i'll
1: continue i'll let you i'll update you if i ever have like better successes than what i've had currently with it but yeah um cool cool um is it pronounced balan or belan because i want to do it right
0: oh i oh i say belan belan so obviously the the author says
1: (laughs) belan yeah yeah (laughs) um so yeah, the Bieland deck was great, obviously, and um, and congrats Matt on on publishing it. Thank and you. I actually can't believe obviously I can believe because it's great, but you know, you um you shared recently that Jonathan Leatham mentioned in his year end highlights, which is amazing. Um yeah, that so was a cool it's moment. it's clearly it's spreading its tentacles and finding an audience, which is which is fantastic. It is. Uh, one question for you, Matt, because you, I'm kind of yeah. interested in Nobel Prize winners. You mentioned Pearl S. Buck in the book mm. and as a kind of underrated laureate. So, like, is she any good and should we read her and what would she, what, what should we read? Because she never comes up really. She's sort of a forgotten name, isn't right.
2: she?
0: Right. Yeah. And I have a bunch or several of her books, I would say. But uh, I mean, The Good Earth, that's it. Like The Good Earth is she won the Nobel Prize based on that book. And I guess there's a couple of like cheeky things about that reference, which is that right before that in the book, like the sentence before I say something sort of extolling the virtues of experimental nonlinear fiction, and then boom, hit you with like, well, The Good Earth is also like deserves a Nobel Prize, which is very much a traditional linear sort of novel. Um, The other thing is like the main character of uh, the good earth is uh, a Chinese person named O-Lan, like Mm O-L-A-N. And there's a mention in the book of, um, there's a lot in the book about this guy named Ogden Mills. And I'm sort of like free associating with Olin Mills, which if you grew up in the United States in like the 1980s and you had your family portrait taken at the mall, it was usually at a studio called Olin Mills. Oh, really? <laughs> so there's like this it's connection between funny. like in between like Ogden Mills over here, who was like sort of the founder of San Francisco Airport, and then the good earth over here, Olan. there's like Olan Mills. I was just sort of like... Dux Newberry port, like riffing on words, (laughs) poetic names and things. So that's that's totally bizarre. But I actually really like that book. And, you know, it reminds me a bit of the anything that's written about really poor people in distant lands long ago. Um, And, you know, John Berger's Pig Earth is like this. Um, Some other books that we've mentioned on the show, I sort of in this vein of. Um, almost communist, right? Where it's like the stories of the poor people were not told the workers were, you know, the stories were written by the rulers or the people who were interesting lives. And I was more interested in the commoners life. Um, and you know, what is it like the person who's out picking in a field right now? You know, what is their life like? And that's sort of what the good earth is about. And there's a sort of resonance where I try to bring it up in the last line of my book where it's like the real earth, um, and down underneath all the concrete that we've built on this earth is still the good earth, the real earth somewhere. So that is an important book to me in my sort of literary journey of um, Hmm. reading it. So I don't like it when people shit on things that I love, which is, (laughs) that's a book that I love, the good earth.
1: And um, I need to read that too. Yeah, I do too. And I don't think Jonathan Lethem observed it himself, but he referenced in another uh, review of the book that, I really loved what this, whoever the reviewer was, they, they, they made the Twin Peaks connection, that the, when you are, when the, the narrator of the book is dictating to their kind of AI assist, their assistant, and there's the kind of digressions on AI. It's a bit like Diane, the, the dictaphone of Diane from Twin Peaks. I love that connection i don't know if you had that in mind matt when you were writing it or
0: i did not at all okay. yeah jonathan letham made that connection and i was like huh <laughs> i haven't seen the new twin peaks um i haven't thought about twin peaks i, I do like fire walk with me a lot but <laughs> um i i i'll have to go watch it now because i had no idea that that was even a thing in twin peaks so yeah, yeah.
2: like right cool. off the hop right with asian cooper it's driving and dictating
0: i just didn't even remember i just didn't make the connection can can i keep going with the honorable mentions or are we yeah okay great i'm having i'm I'm having a great time so
1: okay great amazing yeah no no Um, keep going so um it feels weird putting ulysses in an honorable mentions uh
2: because like
1: (laughs) 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 but like that's probably where it would
2: land for me too had i read that book yeah <laughs> so so i finally got
1: around to reading uh, ulysses which um i think we're around the centenary of i think it was 1922 that it was it was first published um so i kind of probably missed the actual but anyway like got close to it um uh, and i read it alongside a, a really helpful guide that i would recommend to um to anyone reading it for the first time called Ulysses Unbound by Declan Kybird I think is um is the author and it sounds quite dry because it just gives a kind of chapter by chapter summary followed by sort of themes and how the Gilbert schema kind of links up with the novel but it's incredibly helpful because it is a really difficult book and Declan will say something like Oh, and this piece of paper had a racing, a horse racing tip on it. And then the person sort of he throws it in the bin, but then someone picks it up and then they win money on the gold cup because and you're like, Yeah, I never would have realized that if you hadn't explained it to mm. me, and that's quite important in some ways. So um so that really enhanced my reading. So I did like chapter of Ulysses, chapter of Declan's Smart. book explaining it. So I kind of put the I put the hard yards in and it was, you know. It's, it's obviously a, a fantastic is that it's the it's the, the ur text for the mega novel isn't it so in some ways yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, how long did it take you to read those together ooh, good question i think do you two do that thing with big books where you're like i'm definitely going to finish this book i'm like halfway through so like it would be absolute travesty if i gave it up now yeah. but i am going to fit in some smaller books to kind of get some momentum back so like I think there was probably a bit of that going on um during the reading of Ulysses but um and I uh, there's um there's a book of critical essays written by one person sort of micro essays called Multiple Joyce which is I can't remember the author but I've got that lined up this year as a kind of like afterburner kind of let's read some kind of critical some critical stuff on it so that's got I've got that lined up and I also when I'm having bits of downtime at work, I kind of wanna do the audiobook of Finnegan's Wake this year as well. So I'm having a bit of a Joycean mm.
2: project going on. Yeah, okay. Renaissance, yeah. Cool. I I, I would
0: give one one comment on Ulysses, which is Uh, I had a chance to take a class on Ulysses when I was an undergrad and I didn't, and I regret it. So (laughs) if if there's anyone listening to this who has the chance ever to take a class on just one novel or particularly on Ulysses, do it or else you'll regret it the rest of your life. (laughs) Amazing. I totally agree.
2: I bet that'd be a great book to take as a, as a class, right? Like that's how you understand. Yeah. The book and have the momentum to finish it. Yeah,
1: yeah. My my university was also did that thing of like we're just going to do a whole semester of the, and and the novel is just it, Ulysses is just it for the whole semester. And I agree with you. I wish I'd kind of like bargained with the history department to let me take that. I did some other credits in other <laughs> departments, but I never thought to do that. It was probably too intimidating at the time, uh and it took me like a decade to get around to it at my, at my own pace. But yeah, yeah. um. I read, um, uh, I read a prophet song by Paul Lynch, which just won the the Booker Prize.
2: Rachel finished this like yesterday. What did Rachel think of it? She found it to be utterly devastating, terrifying, horrific in every way, but like fantastic. But she feels like she's like really scarred from this book, from how plausible the like fascist government situation in Ireland that it's that it sets up is
1: it's really provoked quite a lot of debate I think running the gamut from the kind of um, people being crossed that it appears to be a sort of wokey left wing pick for the for the prize and like how Mm. dare they because it's just a flash in the pan kind of thing that is is going to be forgotten about in, in years to come And people on the other side of the spectrum going like it's incredibly sort of relevant and timeless. And, you know, it's that Margaret Atwood quote of all of these things have happened somewhere at some point. So I've kind of put it all together. But none of this is, you know, none of this is speculative. This has all happened before somewhere, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I uh, I, um, there's a Booker Prize podcast, which is like run by the official book of people Mm. and one of the hosts because they had read the shortlist and they were kind of discussing just the the hosts of the podcast they were discussing what they thought of the shortlist and one of the hosts was like I just don't buy the premise of this book it would never happen in Ireland and it's like I I profoundly disagree with you that obviously not just Mm. Ireland but anywhere but like definitely in Ireland it it could happen and um, it you know it makes you think it's one of the you know we said I said earlier that like you know books books read you as well and it is that thing of you're reading it and you're thinking well what would I do if there were sort of what am I doing you know are there the stirrings of fascism right now and what am I doing to stop it and how will I feel if they came for me and knocked on my door and all that kind of stuff so it's a really without directly doing it the book is obviously posing the question to the reader like how how would you feel how are you going to feel when this when it goes down like this And it's always going down like this somewhere at some point. So um, I wasn't in love that the prose style wasn't my necessarily like my favorite type of prose style. And it's quite it's quite poetic. It's quite um, the inner lives of the characters. There's a lot of kind of internality to the to the narration. Mm -hmm. But it's undoubtedly a great a great book. And um, I would recommend that. And I enjoyed that. And um, I also read I try and read the I try and read the book of prize winner every year now and i try and read it early to kind of get you know sometimes you've absorbed so much discourse that you're like i feel like i've read yeah, it without having read common. it yeah so mm-hmm. i so i read um i read uh, the seven moons of mali almeida as well which is by um shehan karuna tilaka who won it last year which is also a really good novel cool. set during the civil war i guess happening in sri lanka in the late 80s and early 90s and that is mm-hmm. also And he's quite heavily influenced by like Kurt Vonnegut type stuff. So it's got a kind of, it's that thing of like playfulness mixed with the awfulness of historical reality kind of coming together. So he he wears some of the awfulness quite lightly because it's like, this is so dreadful that the only way I'm going to get you to read this book and we're going to get through it is, you know, if I'm a bit playful with it, it." but but it packs a punch. So that would also recommend that. um, Cool. And then just a few more, um, Self-Portrait in Green by Marie Ndiaye. So I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but her surname is N-D-I-A-Y-E. And yeah. um, that was really good, very short novella length, and... Um, Lots of stuff about kind of identity and blackness, I think, as well. Uh, That was really excellent. And then um, Nothing Special by Nicole um, Flattery, which is set during Mm -hmm. kind of Andy Warhol's factory uh, era about a young... Did did you know that Andy Warhol did this novel where um, he... He basically just recorded people, just had, he just kind it's of. It's called
0: A. I, I A. have that book. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it yeah. was just like, he, without people really knowing they were being recorded, um, it was just dial, straight dialogue of like people socializing at the factory or whatever. And then he just transcribed as the dialogue, as it's written on the page, I think, like as it happened. Mm. So there's no editing for like intelligibility. Mm. And obviously, these yeah, people it's are It's really not in-
0: readable. I, <laughs> I didn't find- it. I mean, it's an interesting experiment. I like the idea of it, and I bought it. But it's it's not interesting that- like The idea of it is interesting, but the reading of it is terrible. Hmm. Um, I bought Sounds this book- Sounds kind of
2: unethical, too. Nicole
0: Slattery. I bought this book for my wife for Christmas, partly because I wanted to read it. So um, I expect after she's done, then I'll pick it up, sort of like what, what Dave's talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's Girl. like a bad mother, right? Like, what what else is going on in yeah, this?
1: Book? Yeah, so it's so the principal character is is hired as a typist, I think, in in the factory to to transcribe the tapes to make the to make a this novel, and uh, yeah, she's living with her her mom. I read it a while back, so I can't remember too much, but it's again, it's got a kind of Mad Men, slight kind of madmen kind of flavor to it, and it's just kind of you know if you've got any interest in Warhol and the factory, it's kind of about like being on the, the fringes of that, but also about sort of loneliness and finding connection in, in New York in the, in the period. And uh, I thought that was, that was really good. So would recommend that. And then just finally I've, I caught up with a few um, Annie Erno short novellas that, cause I'm just sort of trying to read my way through Annie Erno, Um, So I think I read one called Exteriors and maybe A Man's Place, which is about her father. And she's just got such a good kind of um, eye for dissecting French society and just watching people and how they behave and class structures and things like that. So I'm sure that I'm sure I'll be enjoying Annie Erno's output uh for for many years to come and just kind of eking it out bit by bit because it's i want to make it last but yeah she's a great author
0: yeah i bought a couple of hers in 2022 i think and i don't remember the titles because they all kind of blend together but they're similar in memoiristic novels um with some like social commentary mixed in so uh, i i want to get back and read more i saw david herring was reading them all on Twitter, like in the one year he read like everything she has in print, which is pretty ambitious. Huh.
2: Cool. Awesome. Ben, thank you for your very robust list of uh, reading in 2023. That's awesome. Oh, one more. Um, one, one more couple...
1: day. Oh yeah.
2: Oh, sure. Sorry. sorry. Didn't and, mean to um, cut you off.
1: <laughs> no, I just, I was just checking and I was like, Oh God, I, I I've missed out. Um, the uninhabitable earth by Dave Wallace Wells. So I just, I'll chuck that one in as my kind of nonfiction read for the year, which was just. An incredibly sobering account of what will happen to us all if we um continue to be pumping out greenhouse gases and all the rest of it and you know what happens if we get to two percent what happens if we get to three percent what happens when we get to four percent mm, and just kind of right. playing out the various scenarios and um you know you did your great episode with um david lipsky and so it, i feel like that was I should go on and read the Lipsky now, having read the Dave Wallace-Wells, I think.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's big. sounds like a big theme in all of our reading this year is climate change, climate crisis stuff, yeah. Cool. I mean, not cool climate crisis, but like, you know, cool. Thank you for your books. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, I'll mention a couple of quick honorable mentions uh, that I haven't already mentioned. I've mentioned quite a few, but I finally got around to reading Evan Dara's The Lost Scrapbook this year. Mm another book that was like very hard for me to get as a canadian but i finally did it uh same book order by the way is uh um
0: magnetic (laughs) fields magnetic fields yeah (laughs)
2: um i found it kind of mystifying and like very different from what i was expecting like it it was very hyped to me it's
0: super experimental
2: it's pretty experimental and it also is kind of a book where i was like i don't really know what's happening until the end and then i'm like oh okay it's and some Aaron kind of
0: Brockovich type shit. Like poison it water. It's an environmentalist book.
2: Yeah. Know. And so now I'm like, well, if I reread it, I think I would get a lot more out of it. Yeah. So maybe I'll do that down the line, but overall quite enjoyable. Uh, and then another book I'll mention is Meiselman, the lean years by Avner Landis, who is a, list- a listener of the show. And this book was recommended to us by Christian Tebordo as like a, an office novel that came out around the same time as the apology. And then he said, he reached out to Avner and said like, Hey, I just came out with a book that sounds similar to yours. And they had some good back and forth. Um, So Avner sent that book to us and and I quite enjoyed it. It was great. Really funny, you know, all the trappings of office life and uh, people's egos and things like that. And vendettas, old vendettas and a lot of marital stuff and a lot of stuff about uh, being a Jewish man in America and uh yeah this is a really nice really nice time with that book as well so those are my couple more honorable mentions matt how about you
0: um so i want to mention a couple books uh one is this book by nick voro called conversational therapy short stories and other plays and uh it's a bunch of very unique uh stories one of which i will point out called alligator resort about a resort full of alligators. Um, uh, it's, it's really say what you f- see funny, um, yeah. and I, I really enjoyed that book by Nick Voro. Um, this other book I want to mention, published by Corona Sami's dot, called "A Pastoral" by Lee Thompson. These are mm-hmm. both Canadian writers, by the way. Oh, cool! Yeah. Um, and they are the ones who published, you know, "Cult of the Cactus Boots," mm-hmm. and. I think this book, I want to do like a whole episode on as well. I have a lot more to say about um, A. Pastoral and Lee Thompson. Really phenomenal um, writing in that Sweet. book. Um, the third book I'm going to mention is a nonfiction book called The Migrant Chef by uh, Laura Tillman. And Laura Tillman is a journalist, writer in Mexico. And this is a biography of a chef in Mexico City named Lalo Garcia, Lalo Guzman, something like that, Lalo. And he, you know, grew up extremely poor in Mexico, made his way to the United States, became, you know, a sort of a line cook at a shitty restaurant in Florida. And, you know, this is a long, long story about how he ended up becoming like a high-end um, restaurateur. And his restaurant in Mexico city is called Maximo Bistro. And, you know, this is one of the like great restaurants of the world. And, you know, he grew up literally like picking vegetables. And like, how Hmm. does a person like that sort of like what I was talking about with the good earth, like end up, um, succeeding. And this is a true story of that. So I've been meaning to write a review of this book. I haven't found the right place to really write about this book, but, uh, I would highly recommend it. Her previous book is also fantastic. Um, which is about a horrific, true true crime. Maybe don't read that one if you have little kids. But oh, yeah, um, okay. uh, thanks the, for that. The migrant chef is heartwarming in a way, but also like sort of terrifying about United States immigration policy mm-hmm. and um, you know why, why this guy ended up back in in Mexico rather than in the United States. Um, but a true story. A great sort of reporting in a book that probably should have got more attention. So that's my honorable mentions. Thanks for everyone for sticking with cool. us. Like I said, we'll have these lists in the show notes. If you've made it this long, we're at two hours of recording.
2: You won't um, have to go back and like rewrite them down in case you missed doing that. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. We've got it already written down for you, which you can get at concavity or greatconcavity.podbean.com. Um, Uh, we will, like I say, have more to say about films and podcasts and music and other media on our bonus episode. So keep a lookout for that. Um, Ben, any final thoughts, Dave, any final thoughts before we wrap up this uh, year end episode?
1: Yeah. A couple of, couple of final thoughts. I'd like you both of you to tell me how you feel about being OG literary podcast type people where i i think when i found your podcast it really was kind of the only thing of its type available and actually in the last couple of years maybe lockdown related you've now got um a don delillo podcast and a nalsgard podcast uh of, you know and um who a Jonathan Franson podcast and various other ones oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and so how do you feel about do you, you know are you avid consumers of all of these other uh podcasts or, and and how do you feel about really sort of being there from the beginning and and sort of kicking all that off
0: hmm. I mean I love all those other shows the Volman as well Beyond, beyond the zero i mean there's there's a ton of them and i mean i think it's a great medium the more the merrier i'm not competitive about it at all i don't need any kind of credit for for we did this i mean i think a lot of people hate our show which is fine uh anytime you put something <laughs> out there read our reviews
2: on, yeah oh, people people are going to trash guidance.
0: you if you write anything like a book You know, I look at some of these books that we've mentioned today. Ulysses has like four star rating on Goodreads. It's like, you know, Gravity's Rainbow is like 3.9 star rating. It's like, okay, well, then you go fucking write a masterpiece and maybe then you'll give it five stars, you know. You
2: guys seen that Instagram account, Bad Reads Official, which just shows all like the one star reviews. Very funny.
0: Yeah, Yeah, but in just in general, it's it's sort of absurd, but I I like those other podcasts. I think, like I say, the more the merrier. One thing that is unique about our show, which does limit the number of episodes we can do is that Dave and I have to agree on what to read next (laughs) and then actually read the book. And a lot of those other shows, it's like, well, they've already read all of the Volman books or they've already read all of the Franzen books and the Don DeLillo books. Whereas we're sort of branching out to read new stuff and maybe hopefully stuff that doesn't get as much attention. Um, But it's not one person's show. Like it's a two person show, Oh, yeah. uh so we we do have to agree and sometimes we don't so that slows us down in publishing <laughs> new episodes but uh, i don't Might. know what do you think dave i've never really
2: thought of this ben before that we like started like this i don't know some kind of trajectory of like single author podcast before that's a new new concept to me but i mean if we had any hand in um you know interesting people in like making their own podcast about the writer they're excited about. That's really cool. Like that's a, I'm very happy if we were able to give any inspiration to anybody else, that that's wonderful. And yeah, like the book community online is has been such a lovely thing to be a part of, you know, here and like the way it's spread on, on Instagram and other places too, and Twitter. Um, happy to be here along for the ride for it. And uh, I'm just like really thankful for people who've been with us for so long, like you Ben, who like, like the lore of the show you mentioned earlier, that's hilarious. <laughs> um yeah, so
1: I think I mean, it's a it's a testament. To, it's like, well that's good to hear because I was going to make you promise and then I thought that's not really appropriate, but you've done it for me so I don't have to. <laughs> um but I think it's a testament to your show that you know when you find a podcast and it's a kind of a mainstream interviews podcast type thing where it's like, I don't know, whatever. Um I can't think of an example, you know, there's, there's millions of them, right? Or have you heard of off menu podcasts? Like, for example, where they get celebrities talk about what meals they like. And it's like, you flick, you flick through those (laughs) ones, you flick through those ones and you're like, Oh, you know, Carl McLaughlin's being interviewed. I'll check that one out. I want to listen to that one. I don't care about any of the other people. But, 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 but the testament to your podcast is that I obviously had barely heard or not heard of any of these people, for the first 50 mm-hmm. shows that you did. And I was like, I'm, I'm with it. I'm just, sc- I'm going to listen to all of these cause I'm going to learn about new people and new books and, and new perspectives. So you, you bring people along for the ride, I think. And it's, it's, the, you know, you talk about the output can kind of get a bit slow down a bit cause you've both got to agree. And, but I think that's a testament to the fact that you put a lot of research in and care into an episode. You don't just jump into an episode. Um, Willy nilly, and you know, and you. So it's it's quality, not quantity, and your you know, your quality merchants. And for
0: the record, we're not paying Ben to say any of this. <laughs> as I know, uh, I didn't. I didn't incentivize him to make funding all of his Patreon or, money
2: sorry. back to him over the yeah. years, but no, we, and, we, and,
0: we really appreciate that. It's really, really kind of you to say, yeah. That's and the, simple,
1: the, the, you know, the the lore of my Christmas and new years for the last four or five years have been making a cup of coffee and sitting down, da- lying down on my sofa with a nice blanket and a, and a notebook and listening to all your highlights for the year and making huge <laughs> notes about what to, to look into for the next year. So, uh, so it's really nice to be a part of it.
2: That's cool. That happens for me too with this episode because Matt always talks about all these books I've never heard of, and I'm like, read. Now I have you know, a whole reading list for the next year, kind of thing.
0: Oh, me too. I, I have tons of notes, and um, you know, have not read most of what you guys have talked about. So yeah, yeah. I have more than Lovely. enough books that I could read in a lifetime.
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, ben where can people hit you up online are you on the internet If people want to hit you up on LinkedIn and if they found a book in a used bookshop with your name in it where can they reach you
1: <laughs> they I'd say just e- my email address is the best way if people want to email me because I'm weirdly anonymous and pseudonymous online you know oh, yeah. where you know i've kind of kept it on the down low on kind of locked twitter accounts which is actually then incredibly annoying when you want to interact with someone who doesn't follow you and you've sort of cut off the key element of interactivity on twitter but um so ben.diamond at gmail.com if anyone wants to email me
2: cool cool would you be comfortable with me taking a screenshot of us talking right now for a future post or or would you like to keep your face anonymous on the that's that's absolutely fine (laughs) sweet um, we'll do that later uh, matt where can people reach us
0: concavity show looks like we're mostly on instagram on email but you know that's how we found ben was that he emailed us so we do read and respond to every single email we get so please um reach out with your own recommendations or um negative reviews don't put those on apple podcast put those in an email to us uh no I'm kidding. Every everyone's free to do whatever you want but we do like getting emails concavity show at gmail.com um i think that's it dave yeah
2: awesome thank you everybody hope you had a great uh, 2023 we look forward to doing this again next year and we wish you all a great year in reading stick around for the bonus episode dropping a couple weeks after this one for our year and other stuff thanks so much ben it was great having you on really appreciate you thanks, thanks for having me catch me now as i say Darkness I to be extinct.
1: Trying to kind of hold his nerve and go down there and
2: and sorry the fire alarm's just gone off in my house. Someone's like cooking upstairs and just uh here I'll mute myself.
0: What in the hell?
2: Um, I'm at my in-laws right now because there's no children in this house, and their fire alarm just went off. Jesus Christ! They're cooking mate. something in their oven procs the uh, fire alarm all the time. Sorry about that. Whew. Oh, there's the mute. I just found where the mic mute button is. Whoops. Uh, anyways, we'll just we'll just edit that out. It's fine. I'll put that as the Easter egg. Just just loud. <laughs> <laughs> all right so where were we so the beige fudge and then So (laughs) so the threesome doesn't go off as as he planned